Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. The best news I got was when Lincoln was dead. What's the matter, Mama? A man shows respect even if it's for a dead damn Yankee president. This is the unusual story of a rebel who waged a one-man war against the United States. Filled with defeat and hate, he rode west to help the Sioux fight the damn Yankees. Would you kill the Americans if we should go in the battle? I'm a Sioux. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Colin Gallagher. Howdy. Also with us this week is Mr. Joseph Madry. Hello. This week we're looking at the 1957 film from writer, director, producer Sam Fuller, Run of the Arrow. The film stars Rod Steiger as O'Meara, an Irish-American who fires the last bullet of the Civil War. Or as we call it, the war between the states. Now, wait a minute. Who are you? Colonel Jefferson Beauregard Lee, sir. Yeah, but you're not part of our story. No, I'm from the League of Confederate Correctors. The League of Confederate Correctors? Every time a program refers to the late unpleasantness as a civil war. Uh, you show up and correct them? That's right, Shug. 
He chafes under the idea of living in a land where the Yankees have won. And with it being 150 years too early to support the Trump campaign, he decides to break west where he ends up living with the noble Savage Sioux. The film predates Kevin Costner's Dances with Wolves by 33 years, but but the two share quite a few similarities. While the film is just about 60 years old, I don't want to uh, you know, spoil it for anybody, so be warned. Run of the Arrow was kind of tough to find for a lot of years on home video, but it is available via the Warner Archives. So if you want to watch the movie before hearing us talk about it, go ahead. We will still be here. So, Cullen, when was the first time you saw Run of the Arrow, and what did you think? I first saw it in 2011 when um, I was writing for Not Coming to a Theater Near You, and we were um, programming uh, a monthly screening series at 92Y Tribeca here in New York. And we were trying to find movies that had some sort of pop cachet, like notable names, but were just not available on home video at all. And we wanted to do Sam Fuller and Run of the Era was one of these movies that we had all been dying to see. I eventually found a copy, I think through iOffer or Cell.com, some you know, bootleg. And I was blown away by how radical <laughs> and just out there the movie was. I was familiar with Fuller's uh, filmography, but he never ceases to astonish and amaze and just fully confound me. Yeah, I, I love him. How about you, Joseph? I actually didn't see it until uh, I was working on my book on Westerns a few years ago. I was aware of, of Sam Fuller, but but primarily as a film noir director. And so I, I saw actually all of all of Sam Fuller's Westerns, kind of all, you know, all four of them right around the same time. I think Run of the Arrow is actually the one that's the, that, that sort of holds up the best and, and that really speaks to... Uh, the current day, the most. I, I, I have sort of a weakness for forty guns, but that one's, uh, I think, kind of hampered by, by by the ending. I saw this one for a film class, and I can't remember which class it was, but it was an an odd choice, and I think it might have been um, uh, Professor Okadake who showed it to us because he just his choices were always kind of outside the norm, which I appreciated. You know, rather than showing us Potemkin, he would show us Strike. You know, rather than showing what you would expect, he would show something a little bit different. And Run of the Arrow, I definitely saw it in a theater with an audience, and so many of the images and the ideas stuck with me for so many years things that were kind of crazy, like Charles Bronson as a Sioux chief, things like the, um, we'll be talking about the, uh, the mute, uh, native American boy who cries for help via a harmonica, just these kind of weird scenes that are, are uh, always with me throughout the, the rest of my mu- movie viewing experience. And then of course, I think that was just a few years north of Dances with Wolves. And so watching this movie, I was just like, this is kind of familiar here. This guy who moves out to the West and lives with with the Indians and kind of, you know, finds the uh, nobility of the savages being much more tasteworthy than the savagery of the white men. So it was a little bit of a revelation. I don't really know why I chose to do this film at this particular time, but 
yeah, it definitely seems to have a whole lot more weight to it now, or or the messages from this movie speak to a whole new audience here in 2016, as well as I'm sure they, they did back in, what, 1957 when this came out. I, the other thing that was always strange to me was the whole idea of Rod Steiger. I mean, I love Rod Steiger. Sometimes it's kind of like this cheesy love that I have for him when he does like these crazy accents and stuff. You know, I love him in The Specialist with uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone where he's talking about... And he's an explosive expert and I think uh, he can be a big help. So him with this southern irish accent just killed me i loved it like i said from the beginning the bullets walked walked and then especially that they make such a big deal about how well he speaks sue later on in the the uh the the movie you know and of course they're all speaking english but he speaks it with no accent he he, he speaks sue like a sue not like an american it really is jarring watching the movie because you don't expect i mean a lot of times i i will have kind of westerns on in the in the background and you're used to these grand vistas and, and you don't expect to hear his voice. So if you're, you're listening to, you know, the, the gunfire and all the, all the, all the sounds that you associate with a Western, and then you hear his voice, it, it, it does seem like a really strange juxtaposition. It kind of, it, it kind of kept pulling me back to the screen. Even his physique, his face, his posture and the, the way he walks is so unusual for uh, a protagonist in a Western film of this time. And the first time that we see him, he is filthy dirty. It's him underneath the opening credits and open, uh, the opening title. And just how dirty he is and just the way that we see him kind of nonchalantly kill or shoot at this uh, Yankee soldier and then proceed to rifle through his pockets while the guy's still living – um, and he's just taking all this stuff out of his clothes and everything. And then when the guy makes a noise, he's like, oh, shit, now I've got to take this guy back to camp and get him fixed up. And it ends up that he is the person that fired the last bullet of the Civil War. And he's right there at Appomattox as he sees General Lee surrendering to General uh, Stonewall Jackson the conversation that he and the doctor have with one another. There are so many great pieces of dialogue in this film and we we all know that sam fuller could write some amazing dialogue and this movie is just rife with it this conversation the conversation that we have coming right up after this after the war has been won by the north lost by the south and that conversation that he has with his mother or the conversation that he has with this guy who kind of comes into town on this wagon and is singing this great song about, you know, how uh, the the flag is stained with Confederate blood or Southern blood and just really sets us up for this guy is definitely not happy about having lost the war. And that's something that we don't necessarily think about when we see Civil War stories, we tend to see them more from the Northern perspective, I suppose, except for, you know, like Gone with the Wind. But this one really looks at that era of reconstruction with somebody who does not want to be in that time. He does not want to accept that the war is over. It's certainly not unprecedented, you know, in in terms of popular Westerns. I mean, you look at uh, like the 1939 Jesse James. I mean, you're dealing with Southerners who refuse to give up the war. And it, and it, you know, I I guess it was, it was maybe a bigger theme in Westerns that came along after Run of the Arrow because, like, what pops into my head was, was a couple of um, 
spaghetti westerns like the tramplers and um the hellbenders uh which are which are vicious uh, i mean actually even more vicious than than uh than run of the arrow or something like the outlaw josie wales um you know clint eastwood is you know it's the same thing he's he refuses to give up this war he's going to keep fighting it that conversation he has with his mother is fantastic when he starts to talk about the best news i got was when lincoln was dead what's the matter mama it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Respect even if it's for a dead damn Yankee president. Have you lost your reason? Baboon was shut too late. The bullet which killed him can prove worse for us than for the North. You talk like you're sick in the head. Well, he said he was going to take all of us seasage back in the Union, didn't he? Who cares about the Union? Oh, lots of us do, son. I know it seems a downright shame we got to take the oath of allegiance to the United States to become Americans again. But we got Jeff no country. Jeff Davis is in though. jail. Lee is begging in the mud. Now, that's a fine, fitting way to take us back into the Union, ain't it? Well, no man's beaten without some hatred. And I hate, Mama. I hate. Basically, he does the not my president. The way that he comes back and talks to her about how that's very easy for her to say because she didn't end up burying all of his brothers. And the way that he describes the deaths of each one of his brothers just really tears her heart out. Pa was killed at Chickamauga. Jeff had his head cut off at Fredericksburg. Eli lay with his belly in his hand, bleeding to death on the wheat fields of Gettysburg. Mama, I know I seen them. I seen their skin and blood and I buried them. I had to bury them, Mama. I buried them. You didn't. Incredibly gruesome, the descriptions and even some of the visuals up to that point. You know, like when he uh, goes to the field hospital and you see them removing the body and there's this blood everywhere, blood on the pillow, blood on the, the doctor's aprons. Fuller really wants to make people realize just how disturbing and violent you know, the war really was with its casualties. I mean, I think that that sort of is a, is a theme that's running, sort of an anti-violence theme that's that's. They're in, uh, in both Run of the Arrow and in 40 Guns. If I'm not mistaken, and, and maybe Colin will correct me if I'm wrong, I, I'm pretty sure that Sam Fuller was outspoken about, uh, you know, basically thinking that the, uh, you know, the, that the Second Amendment was, was highly problematic and, and was pretty outspoken about uh, his, his belief that violence is not, not the way to, uh, to solve our problems. And this is, 
this is somewhat of an untraditional perspective to to bring into a Western, especially in the 1950s. So I think he comes back to that, you know, in many of his films. I mean, even though he does frequently make Westerns or war films, you are right. There is a, a strong anti-violent message throughout many of them. Well, I think even just war itself, you know, he's, he was very anti-war, especially having lived through so many of the worst parts of World War II. I don't think that he would ever say that there was any such thing as a just war. And him playing up the violence of the Civil War, I mean, that really – I wasn't too surprised, though it was really kind of shocking to see just how violent he was portraying it. And then even later on, when he has the wars between the soldiers and the Sioux, just how violent some of those things are. It doesn't feel like that, you know, bang, bang, you're dead, somebody falls over. You really feel some of those deaths. Say someone gets shot with a burning arrow, and it's not just cut. You see the person you know, engulf in flame. That was exactly the, the moment I was thinking, too, is just you feel that impact of the arrow, and then to see that poor guy slump down. Even when Brian Keith, spoilers, ends up getting shot, it's just like, wow, this is such a, you know, it was such a quick moment, but it, that's how war is. You know, one moment you're standing there, and the next moment you've got either a bullet or an arrow in your chest, and just shocking how fast that happens. So he ends up Rather than living in this world where the North is trying to make them swear allegiance back to the United States of America, he packs his bags and goes out west, and he runs into a a Sioux scout named Walking Coyote, and it's problematic, but at the same time, it's interesting the way that well, we have pretty much uh, the majority of our main Native American roles are being played by white actors, which was fairly typical, I think. I mean, I'm always reminded of the line from Barton Fink about writers come and go. We always need Indians. So many of these white people playing Indians, uh, playing in red face. And then the other thing that I found kind of problematic, though it fits with the character, was that when um, Omira throws what he thinks is water into a guy's face, it ends up being whiskey. They really speak to the problem of whiskey among the Native American population, because at one point you see, you know, the uh, uh, walking coyote is like, oh, these kids, you know, they're out there drinking whiskey and, and shooting women and doing all these horrible things. And you see them, they have this kind of bacchanal later on when we see the, these Indians, they're having this crazy thing and they're pouring whiskey all over each other. And it's just like, okay, that's kind of like makes me a little queasy from like a 2017 perspective of looking at these people and like, oh, geez, you know, Indians being addicted to whiskey. But yeah, that was actually a real problem or probably still is a real problem of alcoholism amongst Native Americans. And in this case, it definitely was a problem because we've got this kind of rogue band of Sioux who are very uh, into drinking of whiskey and doing these horrible things. And Walking Coyote, I think it's kind of part of his character because he seems to be on the outs of the Sioux and really is not treated as one of them at all. He's pretty much treated just as badly as Omira when the Sioux finally encounter these guys. They're both outsiders, and I think what's really interesting and, and the thing that you can kind of contrast with, with some of the other Westerns of that, that period is that uh, as, a, as a character, Walking Coyote is individualized. He does have individual personal strengths and weaknesses. Um, so, yeah, sure, there, there may be 
stereotypes there, but but at least he's he's really kind of fleshed out as a as a character. Um, you know that 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 there is sort of some of the the psychological complexity is given to the Indian character, which was which was you know again it's not it's not unprecedented that it had happened before, but it was not. I don't think it was especially common at the time. You know, so it's almost like a buddy narrative between the two of them. The way that you know they started to pair up black and white actors. You know, whether it's like a uh, Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier. Um, and the defiant ones, you know, sort of putting two races together, you know, as a way to sort of overcome stereotypes and, you know, find those common bonds. Without the defiant ones, you would have never had the scalp hunters. It's, I, I hadn't really thought about this, you know, run of the arrow as, as kind of a forerunner of the scalp hunters. But really, you, you, you have to build to a movie like that. We have a scene of Walking Coyote singing this song and, and playing a musical instrument, I believe. And it pretty much picks up on the theme, the Victor Young theme of the movie, which I don't know about you guys, but I kept hearing my old Kentucky home in some of the strains of the, um, the, the theme. I don't know if that was just me or, or if you guys heard that as well, but every time they would come to a certain passage in the song, I kept thinking my old Kentucky home. Which is weird because Omira's from Virginia, but I think that they're kind of, you know, because there are other strains where you do hear like some Dixie coming on here and there. But my old Kentucky home seemed to go through the entire film for me in the musical motifs. And, uh, and it kind of spoke to me about the way that no matter how far away Omira is from his homeland, he still is part of that no matter how far he tries to go and how much he tries to break from that you know he declares himself a sioux he learns the sioux language he learns the sioux symbols you know he's able to to point out you know quickly a, a little rock uh grouping and say what it means and everything he really tries to adapt the culture but yet it seems like we still keep hearing that those strains of of my old kentucky home that he still has those ties speaking of you know his ties i, I keep thinking back to the fact that he's 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 irish you know he's not just a southerner and i kept thinking of the the significance of that and to me uh it was that he is a man that you know moves from nation to nation that he's he's always on the move and it keeps you know asking the question well what does it mean to be irish what does it mean to be southern what does what does it mean to be american it just seemed to be a, another way of sort of deepening this conversation and also talking about the migration of peoples from one place to another. Well, there's also some irony when it comes to him being Irish, because a lot of people today, you know, when we celebrate St. Patrick's Day and it becomes this big, you know, drinking holiday for better or for worse, we forget how they were put down in, in the U.S. They, they, there was a, a whole thing. I remember seeing signs of, you know, no Irish allowed, you know, and there's that, that funny line, the laugh line in Blazing Saddles. All right. 
We'll give some land to the niggers and the chinks, but we don't want the Irish. That's kind of how it was, you know, we, we were, the Irish were not respected and people tend to forget that now that so much of like, oh, the American melting pot, as long as you're white. But there was definitely a lot of uh, cultural divide and Irish were generally looked down upon. I mean, people forget that when it came to the West, there were a lot of Chinese people working on the railroad. There were a lot of black people and there were a lot of Irish people working on the railroad. They were seen as kind of second or third class citizens. You see that in the Iron Horse, the John Ford film, if I remember correctly, the Irish and the Chinese working on the railroad together. And yeah, you're right. There is a lot of, are you an American? And that question just keeps coming up. You know, I'm not an American. I'm a Sioux, you know. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and then later on when he's a sue he has to make the distinction i may be a sue but i'm also a christian i love those conversations he has with bronson where it's you know these polemics americans are they they all christians no some are some are of other denominations like your religions You were a Christian. Would you kill Christians in battle? Well, my nation fought for liberty against the United States. And Christianity is always the brother of liberty in all wars. We have the same God, but with a different name. I don't know. I, I just really find it fascinating the way they break down all these different ideas or earlier when they're, you know, when he says, uh, you know, I'll be a Sioux, but I'm not going to honor your gods. I'm a Christian. And then Bronson's asking him, well, what is your God? Do you pray to him for, you know, health and strength? You know, he keeps saying yes and yes. And finally, Bronson says, all right, we have the same God. And yeah, the whole thing of, well, are all Americans Christian? Well, no, some people do your religion as well as Christianity, and there are different sects of that. Okay, well, can you kill a Christian? And it just seems so tenuous the way that he kind of builds that logic to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I can kill other Christians as long as I'm in the right and they're in the wrong, it almost sounds like. It's it's, it's a fascinating sort of didactic moment of the movie, but I, I really love how in your face fuller is with with these ideas 
I almost wonder if, if you didn't sort of end on that note with him, you know, embracing his heritage as an American and saying, I'm, I'm a Christian above all. If, if you didn't have those beats, how, how hard it would have been to get the film made. You brought up the sort of the obvious comparison of Dances with Wolves, which is, you know, obviously like the story structure is the same, but it's also a, a, a film made with kind of different politics for a different time. I mean, if it's actually been a while since I've seen that, but if, if memory serves, uh, Kevin Costner fought for the North. Uh, he's very liberal in his thinking. And, and even at the time, I think there was some criticism about this was, you know, Dances with Wolves was sort of like, uh, you know, a nostalgic throwback to kind of baby boomer idealism. But it's very safe in a lot of ways. I don't know, like Dances with Wolves doesn't feel as biting to me as 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 run of the arrow, even though, um, you know, obviously there's, you know, in terms of screen violence, there's a lot more that you can get away with, um, you know, in 1990 than, than in 1957. I completely agree with that, especially when it comes to who he ends up with, who Costner ends up with. He ends up with a white woman who has been kidnapped by one of the tribes, you know, stands with a fist, I think is her character name. Meanwhile, uh, O'Mara ends up with pretty much a ready-made family, but with Yellow Moccasin and with Silent Tongue, the young mute boy, and then this um, uh, beautiful squaw. Yeah, that would, didn't happen in 1990. You know, he, Kevin Costner had to end up with a white woman. He couldn't end up with a quote-unquote Indian woman, even though I know Sarah Montiel was probably anything but Indian. And then it's even more strange that she, her Indian name could be Speaks with Angie Dickinson's voice, which always kind of adds that strangeness, especially you can tell when uh, Rod Steiger is doing uh, post-sync sound and then versus recorded on set sound like there's a few moments where it's his voice on set and it's just like whoa that that sounds totally different you know when he's reading the uh what the bullet says to her when they have kind of their moment afterwards because he goes full out like once he joins with the tribe he gets married very very quickly to yellow moccasin and has this kind of you know like i said this nuclear family already there he doesn't waste any time when it comes to, hey, I want to be Sue. I want to get married. You know, let, let's do this thing. Let's do it right. And I guess I kind of skipped over the actual titular moment, the actual run of the arrow ceremony, which comes back. You know, of course, it's one of those moments that we have twice in the film because we see it done kind of the right way and then kind of the wrong way later on in the movie, where we have this whole idea of the Sue giving their enemies a chance by, by shooting an arrow into the air and having it land however many you know yards away and then their enemy has the chance to walk out to the arrow and get that much of a head start before everybody starts to chase them and basically wants to kill them so that is the run of the arrow and then i love the story that goes with it as far as you know people were complimenting Fuller on the way that he shot this by shooting everybody's feet running rather than the actual people come to find out that no Rod Steiger twisted, twisted his ankle. So he just used a double <laughs> for him. And then it was also nice because later on we get a lot of these really wide Vista shots of probably the Rod Steiger stand in running through these incredibly wide shots where he's surrounded by this beautiful landscape. And I really kind of appreciated those moments because, you know, at the end of the day, this is a wonderfully shot film. It's absolutely gorgeous. And he uses those kind of Utah exteriors 
to the best of, of uh, advantage. And then also that, that it's a color Western because I usually think of, you know, of course I've seen a, a thousand color Westerns, but I tend to think of Westerns at this time as being more black and white. I guess I'm thinking more of like the older John Ford stuff rather than the searchers, which of course is, you know, one of the most beautiful films ever made. But, you know, I, I really appreciated that uh, Fuller was using color in this one. What popped into my head was actually one of the one of the things you said early early on. You said um, giving them a giving them a chance that the run of run of the arrow is about giving them a chance, and yet the way they articulate in the movie, it's it's really not a chance. I mean, they say nobody's escaped, and and you know it's a it's a pretty grim scenario, and you you sort of have to imagine that anybody who decides to to take the run doesn't really think that they're going to survive, but giving them this chance and and the person who knows they're going to die taking that chance is kind of about um about pride and and you know i like i think that's that's you know why it's sort of the central theme in the movie because uh you know rod rod steiger talks about preferring the quote-unquote savages over the quote-unquote americans you know because at least the savages in the west have their their pride and, and as i'm thinking about this and it, it's something that's should have been immediately obvious, but just popped into my head too, is, you know, is Rod Steiger kind of raising his gun at the beginning of the film, but not, you know, not taking the shot, you know, basically letting, letting the other guy go. And so it, you know, it's, it's interesting how that, that, uh, that run of the arrow as a, you know, as a, as a symbol is really central to everything that, that happens. He doesn't really technically complete the run of the arrow because he has helped. He isn't the first person to do this. Yeah, when he finally comes into camp after Yellow Moccasin has kind of nursed him back to health a little bit, just a little bit because he gets a little bit more nursing after that, he says, I'm the first man to complete the run of the arrow. And no, you know, it, she is in violation of helping him, you know, aiding and abetting a fugitive, basically. But yet he kind of lies to the rest of the camp. So he's pretty much there built on a lie. And then later on, we get to see the second run of the arrow, and we get to see what happens to somebody who interferes with the run of the arrow. And really, that could have and perhaps should have happened to Yellow Moccasin, because she was in violation of what that is supposed to be, even though it is a death sentence. And I'm sure that Fuller is not a fan of death sentences either. Uh, Rod Steiger's character so compelling as a protagonist to me. He is flawed. He's not ideal. Um, the film doesn't always seem to admire him and his choices. And we see that at the be- in the beginning when he shoots Ralph Meeker. You know, would Gary Cooper just sh- would he just shoot some guy on a horse? You know, unprovoked, even if it is in warfare. I, I don't think we would see that sort of behavior from from a you know a leading man. That was, I remember. I think I remember reading that one of the producers. Uh, actually wanted Gary Cooper for this film, which I imagine was fairly common in the 1950s that if you were making a Western, you wanted Gary Cooper, but that, that Sam Fuller, you know, really had to fight for Rod Steiger. There's this, this quote that sort of burned into my brain where he said, I want Steiger because he's got a sour face and a fat ass. That's what, (laughs) that's what makes him right for this movie, for this role. I really do love how unconventional he is. I I can't think of uh, another Western hero or anti-hero whatever you decide to call him um either looking or acting like him before in a, in a hollywood western joseph can you can you think of any you know forebears for someone like him someone that might have preceded him i'm i'm trying to think you know because even as you were 
you were talking earlier about basically him cheating, you know, and lying his way through the run of the arrow, the lack of integrity. Yeah. I mean, a Western hero was not supposed to lack integrity. I mean, it almost, it's, it's almost like, you know, you get to, you get to the 1970s and, and, and a lot of the films that are being, being made are, are sort of labeled anti-Westerns. You know, they're still Westerns in terms of where they take place and the, 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 you know, the historical milieu and all that, you know, even the basic storylines, but the sense in which they were anti-Western was they were, you know, they were shitting on the myth. And, and in a way, that's kind of what, what, what this character is, is doing to a degree, although by, you know, by, by making him still somewhat redeemable in the end, it, it doesn't go so far that I wouldn't classify this as, a, as an anti-Western. The white man comes out West, and I love this dichotomy that we have set up because we've got Blue Buffalo, who's played by Charles Bronson. He's the chief of this particular uh, tribe, and one of his guys is Crazy Wolf, who's played by H.M. Wynette. And Crazy Wolf, true to his name, is uh, he's a little bit nutty. He is the loose cannon when it comes to pretty much this whole story though on the other side when we come to the white guys we've got brian keith it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As Captain Clark, who is very solid. Uh, I love what he has to say to Amira later on in the film. We'll definitely talk about that. And then his second in at arms is Ralph Meeker as Lieutenant Driscoll, who is very much just the, the same thing as the crazy wolf character. And it's great that Driscoll is the guy who Omira shot early on in the film and missed. You know, he shot him in the chest, but it didn't hit his heart. Like I said, from the beginning, the bullets walked, walked. And it's almost like he spends the rest of the movie, Omira spends the rest of the movie basically waiting to decide, will I kill this guy again or not? You know, or that's how it ends up happening. But I love this kind of relationship that we have between the two. And Omira is kind of between the two factions as far as being the white man but rejecting everything that these white guys stand for versus he wants to be like the Sioux, but yet he really does not like Crazy Wolf when it comes to this. And Crazy Wolf is the guy who put him on the run of the arrow. It's nice the way that that kind of plays out because the rest of the film really has to deal with this whole idea of the white man coming in and wanting to work with the Indians and the way that they have to kind of kowtow to the demands of the big chief, uh, Red Cloud, who's played by Frank Decova. They are kind of bending to their will and really trying to, um, you know, the white man is really trying to 
play with their rules and everything. And again, it's that whole idea of playing with inside of the rules. And we've already seen the rules kind of violated with the run of the arrow. And we're going to see that again and again as this movie goes on. I don't want to jump too far ahead. You know, I mean, the opening and closing scenes, you know, are linked by, you know, the same action. It's, uh, you know, Fuller's, he's, he's a masterful writer, not only in terms of dialogue and character, but in, in terms of the structure of his films as well. So they end up using O'Meara as the scout to locate this place. And I like the interchange between O'Meara and this, uh, this commander. We're grateful to have you scout this expedition for the American government. American government? I'm not scouting for the American government. I'm scouting for the Sioux. Well, I, I must say it's the first time I ever met an Irish Indian. I must say it's the first time I ever met a Yankee general. They go out together, and Brian Keith ends up having this great discussion with O'Meara, which I think is really kind of the heart of the film, when he's trying to explain to him what it means to be an American versus what O'Meara is rejecting. And when he tells the whole story of The Man Without a Country, which was one of my favorite short stories growing up, I really appreciated that. And especially this whole idea of the way that O'Meara feels so disenfranchised by the rest of America. And of course, as I'm watching this, you know, the whole idea of, and it's the thing that I've been having the, the worst time of over the last couple of weeks, where I think just how angry and disappointed and, and, and upset I am about having Trump being our, our president-elect. And I just keep thinking, is this the way that certain people felt when President Obama got elected and, and that he's still the president? And if so, how can that be? You know, I just can't see why him being a black man could be such a slap in the face for so many people. And it feels like O'Meara is kind of undergoing the same feelings that I'm feeling, where it's just like he can't seem to handle the idea of, of kowtowing to the Yankee way of life, whereas I can't kowtow to the idea of the racist Trump way of life. Some of those parallels are going through my head every time I've been rewatching this movie over the past couple of weeks. And uh, yeah, you said it pretty well, Mike. I, I agree. I mean, earlier I, w- I was sort of brought up this idea of, of – uh, of Fuller being anti-violence and maybe another way to, to kind of look at run of the arrow is sort of anti-hate, you know, h- hate is, is blinding. It's, it's, there's really no reason in it. So when you're dealing with this narrative, that's about healing the country and bringing everybody together after this, this war, you, you end up, you, you know, it's a narrative that has to kind of by the end of it, redefine what it is to be an American in a way that, that Rod Steiger's character can accept or, you know, and even what it is to, to be a Christian. And I think that, that the, what this movie kind of settles on anyway, is that you, you basically just not giving in to hatred is what defines America and defines Christianity. The Trump parallels. I mean, I can see it from both sides. Like I definitely am in more of the camp of Brian Keith when he's talking to Amira and it, I mean, it's almost like if Amira's side had won mm. is how I'm feeling these days, you know? So, but yet I have to try to empathize with our main character. I have to try to empathize with Amira, but his arguments just always seem to come up short. You know, the way that he talks about. Well, blood and kin and home are worth fighting for, sure. But no man can put that above his country. You don't That's... understand, sir. Wait a minute. We had a right to fight for our rights. 
Well, Lincoln had to keep the union together. No, you wouldn't be damned. You wouldn't be damned now. There's something you know others don't understand. We don't like it. We don't like you making up laws. We don't like it, do you hear? We never liked it. Tell us what to do, how to think, what to think, who to live with. No, sir. We don't like it and we'll fight it. We may go down fighting, but at least we go down like a, like a free white Christian country. <laughs> free white and Christian, huh? crosses and hiding under pillowcases and terrorizing families free white and christian i don't know anything about that sir oh yeah it's always the other fella <laughs> wow things like that just really just hit me in the gut these days and it's like the whole idea of what you're saying as far as this being an anti-hate film because we know that you know i can picture the of course one of the most other famous to me clansmen um images from a sam fuller film is the black guy in shot corridor who's wearing the clan outfit and just showing how ridiculous it is taking all that hatred of black people and putting it inside of himself and portraying this Klansman, you know, just is absolutely crazy. And then I see him bringing up the Klan here again. And I think he even did a, a movie called the Klansman, which I haven't seen yet, but it's just like, wow, he really tries to speak to that here. And this whole idea of, yeah, it's always the other guy, you know, the, like what kind of responsibility do you have for these other people who say that they are quote unquote free white and Christian. I, mean, I, th- I think Fuller was also struggling with understanding Rod Steiger's character. And I, I like that aspect of the movie in that he didn't choose, you know, someone that he totally agreed with, you know, you know, for the main character, I think he really had to struggle to find those aspects of Omira that he could you know, relate to and respect, you know, this sense of, you know, loss and confusion and, and outrage, um, but ultimately not agree with his politics. Captain, I'd like you to understand something. No matter what you believe, no matter how you believe in it, no matter how good you may think it is for everybody else, you'll never make the South accept it by jamming it down their throats. Nobody's the asking you to be a Fourth of July patriot. But look, Coming out here, living like an Indian, fighting your own people, that's not going to cure you. Cure me of what? Hate. Plain hate. And when he says to Amira, you know, I'm not asking you to be a Fourth of July patriot. He wants Amira to be on board with America, though he doesn't have to wave the flag you know, and it kind of again reminds me of another line from another sam fuller film that whole idea of richard widmark being an american in pickup on south street and but yet not wanting people to wave the flag at him don't try to make me into a patriot you know just let me be who i am and i think omira would be kind of okay with that but he has so much hate in his heart and really that is to your point joseph you know they do talk about curing him of his hate and that seems to be what he has gone out west to try to do you brought up trump and it just shut me down i don't know <laughs> i'm still now, now i'm thinking about trump instead of the movie <laughs> i'm sorry trying to, I, trying to think trying to think of something articulate to say about trump but i just i start uh Every time I think about it, I, I just start, uh, you know, getting frustrated. <laughs> so. To your point, Colin, I like that Fuller has chosen somebody who he doesn't necessarily agree with, but yet he doesn't vilify vilify this person. You know, he could make Omera into a complete a hole, but yet 
he is somebody that we do try to understand and do try to empathize with throughout this film. So it is a, a good way to make us feel for somebody whose politics might not necessarily match our own. And the Ralph Meeker character, you know, he at the beginning he's saved and then he turns out to be the villain of the film. You know, there, there's a certain amount of irony in that. I think Sam Fuller was one of the one of one, at least one of the first filmmakers uh, doing westerns to, you know, I don't know if he thought him of thought of them as as antiheroes, but with this, you know, the first two films he directed, uh, first two westerns he directed, I shot Jesse James and uh, the Baron of Arizona. You're you're dealing with pretty reprehensible characters right at the center of everything. But but his goal was rather than to to tell a straightforward Western myth to make psychologically complex stories. He was in a way was making film noir more than he was making. Uh, westerns. Uh, in fact, I, I, if I remember correctly, I shot Jesse James wasn't it sort of evolved because he was going to make a film, I think, about Brutus or maybe it was Cassius. And, and he sort of, you know, the studio came back and said, no, 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 you know, no toga dramas. And so he basically <laughs> took this story that he wanted to tell about, uh, you know, about betrayal and assassination and, and, you know, put it into a Western. And then all of a sudden it becomes palatable for the American audience. Uh, but he, you know, I, I don't know that he got into the Western genre because he was interested in telling the type of Western that was popular at that time. He wanted to tell these psychologically complex human interest stories. And, and you certainly see that in Run of the Arrow. And that's why it stands apart from a lot of the Westerns of the time period. Well, you put this in. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To a special chapter in your book, The Quick, The Dead, and The Revived, The Many Lives of the Western Film, it's kind of this period, what, 55 to 60, I think, is kind of where you, you, you set your lines of demarcation with this. And it's kind of this, um, what would you say? Is it, is it post-war or is it more just kind of um, that turn in the Eisenhower administration where things maybe aren't necessarily as good as they seem to have been in that post-war time and the way that the Westerns kind of reflect this. And you put Run of the Arrow in this particular time period. Well, it is it's 57, but you put it in with this group of other Westerns where we have these kind of more complex and difficult to empathize with characters. I remember that in structuring the book, it was tough tackling the 1950s because there are just so many great Westerns uh, in the 1950s and figuring out how to, to break them up. So I think there were three chapters that, you know, I felt that a lot of the early 50s Westerns sort of went together in, in that their, their politics, their politics were, were maybe more liberal than 
Westerns of previous years had been. And so there was the, the kind of the beginning of a almost a political debate that was going on in, in Western films. And then I think the middle chapter for the, the, the 50s was really about this sort of larger than life uh, West male, white male Western hero who, you know, and sometimes it's a revenge hero. It's a flawed hero in a lot of ways, but who you just just seemed to be this this force that would be the conqueror, would be the, the last man standing against all odds. And so then by the time you get to the, the later 50s, that third chapter, uh, which includes Run of the Arrow, you're, you're looking at Western heroes who are not only flawed, but who seem really, really vulnerable. And maybe that's something that's easy to overlook about Rod Steiger's character in Run of the Arrow, because he is so aggressive and, and so hateful and so violent that you sort of you, you, you miss that all that's a, a byproduct of him being really vulnerable and basically being, you know, maybe one step away from truly neurotic, at least at least for the first half of the movie. I mean, this is all right. So you're asking about other other kind of Westerns from the time that have sort of an antihero character. I mean, this is like just I think one year after The Searchers, which you know, I mean, I could take some heat for, for saying this because it's such an iconic Western. But, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's sort of fair to look at the John Wayne character that and, and, and say that, um, you know, he's, he's fairly neurotic. He's certainly hateful. He seems to be a bit of a white supremacist, <laughs> not necessarily somebody you want to, uh, to be in the room with. And, and it's, you know, to some degree, it's a film about him coming apart. And so I, you know, that's, I guess that's kind of how I was, um, was, was grouping together the films uh, in that chapter on the late 50s, was it did seem to be that Western male heroes starting to come apart. Um, you know, and that's a, that's a trajectory that sort of the whole book traces. Well, yeah, and you can't really get more of a split between a character than when it comes to, well, I suppose in White Comanche, you can have two characters played by the same actor. But in, in this one, that he is constantly being questioned as far as, are you an American? Are you a Sioux? Are you Christian? Are you a Sioux? How is all this stuff playing out? Because we do eventually, things come to a head. The crazy wolf ends up shooting the Brian Keith character. And I can't remember if this is because of what Ralph Meeker's character had done or not, but the things are bad. These two characters are kind of both working against what should be happening, working against the better interest of everything. And I like that we have both in the white camp and in the Indian camp that we have these two bad apples going at it. And then all hell breaks loose where there's outright war between the Sioux and the soldiers, and really it comes down to O'Meara, and he tries to give Crazy Wolf that same chance that he had, tries to get him to do the run of the arrow, and while he's running, Ralph Meeker's character shoots him, violating the run of the arrow, and they capture him, they capture O'Meara, while they are torturing Ralph Meeker while they are going to flay him alive, that becomes the moment where it seems like O'Meara finally decides to him what is right. And it's great because to him what is right is to kill Ralph Meeker, is to put him out of his misery. And using that same bullet that he had shot 
Meeker with in the chest earlier, he takes that bullet and shoots him in the head in this scene, which is a fantastic headshot. One of these things where I just didn't really know that they did these things in Westerns, where he just shoots him right between the eyes with this kind of the last bullet of the Civil War, and he makes his stand, and I really appreciate that afterwards when he is talking to Yellow Moccasin, the way that she picks up on him calling the Sioux they and not we, that he has excluded himself now in the language from the Sioux, and that really kind of puts his flag in the ground, whether it be Confederate or American, puts his flag in the ground and says that he is an American. He is not one of the Sioux. And really, that's where you know the, the film pretty much ends right there, other than a fantastic end title card about the end of the story can only be written by you. Speaking to a 1957 audience is relevant. Speaking to a 2016 audience is very relevant as well. Kind of speaking to me to how great art can transcend and change over time. And just that this film can be as relevant, if not more relevant today than it was in 1957. One of the things I I really like about the ending of this movie is the genre reversal that happens you know, plenty of Westerns end with, you know, there, there's going to be a, you know, the Indian attack on the fort and you have to defend it. But this seems to be the rare Western where that's kind of the good thing to, I mean, I, I hate to say it's the good thing, but it, it, it's a very complex thing where you, you're not trying to stop the mass, you know, the, the Indian attack on the fort. The fort needs to come down in a weird way. I'm rooting for the Indians, but at the same point, I can see where the Indians are in the wrong and where the white men are in the wrong as well. It doesn't give you an easy answer. It's a really, I mean, in a way, uncomfortable thing to watch. And this goes back to what Joseph was talking about, this anti-violence, anti-hatred, you know, thread. You you watch this attack. It's not satisfying. It doesn't provide any solutions. It's an outburst and, you know, a cataclysmic, you know, outcome that was unavoidable, in a way, but it doesn't provide closure. It doesn't end the story at all. It's it's fascinating. That seems like kind of a natural culmination. I mean, like one of the things that I did when I was writing the book was was to sort of, you know, isolate the films that you know are are dealing with the quote unquote Indian problem. You know, and 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 so it's you know they're basically cowboys and Indian narratives. And at the beginning of the 1950s, you have you know a movie like Broken Arrow that's you know pretty forthrightly uh, liberal minded, you know, I mean, Jimmy Stewart basically, you know, for all intents and purposes becomes an Indian. Um, you know, he kind of, he kind of forsakes, you know, the white man's world to, to become an Indian and, and all of our, our allegiance as viewers is, is with the Indians is with him and with the Indians that changes. There's a real back and forth in the, in the films that, that were coming out for the next 10 years in, in terms of kind of where their loyalties would lie, you know, even with that same filmmaker who did Broken Arrow, Delmer Doves, that, you know, that he later did, uh, you know, Drumbeat and and White Feather. And and those are movies that they seem to express a little more concern about being that liberal. They hold back quite a bit. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost like a counterpoint to Broken Arrow. And I think that's because you, years in between those films, you're, you're, you're going, you know, really through the, the heavy part of the McCarthy era. And you know, it's, it's dangerous to be 
that liberal minded. Now, I don't want to be melodramatic, but I, but I, you know, I think that applies to to our our present political situation that we are, you know, we are sort of a nation that, at least on the surface, is kind of going from, you know, from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum, and uh, you know, everybody, you know, all all of us really. Most of us, I think, fall somewhere in between, and and you're you know there's the push and pull, and you're trying to figure out um, you know where where your values are on the spectrum, and it's you know it's it's maybe dangerous to be too far on either side. Yeah, I keep asking myself, did the pendulum have to swing so far back? Have we truly gone so far forward in the last say eight or yeah, I suppose eight years that now we have to go so far back? to where we were so many years ago is that what had to happen or it just seems wrong to me you know and it could just be because i'm simplistic or whatever but it feels like we are as divided today as we were in 1865 you know it feels like we have this same amount of people who are just dissatisfied with where things are, I, w- I would say that that my perspective it's it seems like the conservative movement right now is 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 aggressive and in a way that I don't I don't think that after even after you know eight eight years of of Bush you know when when Obama's elected I don't I don't feel like they're like liberals were were that aggressive at the time you look at you know again to take it back to westerns you look at at some of the westerns that were coming out in the in the early seventies, something like Soldier Blue, you know that's that's really like aggressive, revolutionary, violent liberalism. <laughs> and so it's the violence to me that, or the or the, mm-hmm. you know the, the the hint of violence, the promise of violence that sort of attached to uh, Trump, the Trump movement right now. That that's that's kind of tough for for me to process. It feels like Omira would have felt at home in a spaghetti Western. He does feel like an anti-hero and one of these kind of confused morally characters, morally ambiguous characters. But yet a fistful of dollars is taking place. What? 1964. So in that interim, what are those early sixties Westerns? Like what kind of characters are we getting in those kind of Westerns? Are we going back to traditionalism? I mean, what, what does Camelot bring to us for that period of time? Early sixties, I feel like was sort of an extension of what I was talking about with, with the, uh, uh, you know, that, that chapter on the late fifties that it's, that it's stuff like, I, at least what I think about like the misfits or uh, lonely or the brave, the man who shot Liberty Valance, which are, you know, it's they've got all this kind of like slow death of the West quality. I mean, in terms of America, I'm trying to think of American Westerns after Kennedy. Um, you know, I mean, you've got you've got sort of the rise of uh, of of Sam Peckinpah. I mean, I think a lot of the traditional Western filmmakers were, um, you know, were kind of on their their last legs, and and you, you had a you know a certain amount of sort of nostalgic. Uh, traditional westerns, you know, from the John Wayne camp, but you, you know, you're right that I, you know, I think it's really the rather than it being anything in the American political scene, it is the spaghetti westerns that kind of come along and sort of, you know, re- reinvigorate uh, the genre in a in a way that the traditionalists didn't really like, and then you get, you know, a, a period in the late '60s of very just some very strange 
westerns and and uh you know i just was writing an, an article a few days ago about a, a movie called welcome to hard times and which was a, a burt kennedy movie with um henry fonda and it's it's kind of surreal it's it feels a little bit like a, a spaghetti western but then you've got henry fonda in this sort of traditional you know western hero role and so it's this this strange fusion of trying to work things out and so to me the western genre in the 60s is really just trying to figure out where you know where where america is is headed i mean it's it's you know it's back to that that notion of identity crisis i'm glad that you brought up liberty valence because as you were talking earlier, as far as these types of characters that were getting in the late 50s and early 60s, I was thinking of the man who shot Liberty Valance and what a troubling character he is. And that to me, I mean, I haven't seen enough John Ford films to say that I have a favorite or not, but that is one of the few that I've seen. And that one always stands out for me just because of how troubling it is and how the whole legend of the West can just be, you know, print the legend rather than print the truth. So I'm glad that you brought that one up because um, the James uh, Stewart character in that one is as interesting to me as, well, I think, I think Amira still stands out for me the most, but he's right up there when it comes to these kind of questionable characters that are leading a film. That really is is a film, and John Ford's films in general, I think, are, are sort of opposed to Sam Fuller's film, to Run of the Arrow, in the sense that they are. I mean, I don't want to say that they're they're pro violence, but they they advance this idea that violence is a civilizing force. Because you know, even in the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, I mean, John John Wayne pulling that trigger is the one who who you know who saves the the, the future of the town. Um, you know, I mean, it, it is a violent act that, uh, you know, that, that transforms the, you know, the scene in America for the better, you know, but he's, he's a traditionalist. I mean, you know, even though that's, that's seems like kind of a, you know, a, a, a transitional Western, a late era Western that's moving, you know, maybe towards, um, you know, kind of more uh, liberal politics or more liberal time in, in America, uh, and embracing it on some level through the, the Jimmy Stewart character, you know, I mean, it's it's still John Wayne being John Wayne, um, and he's he is still the hero of that movie. There's, a, there's an interesting scene in uh, Port of Patchy that I think anticipates uh, some of the mythology of Men Are Shot Liberty Valance, and it's at the end of the movie after Henry Fonda's Custard character, you know, after the battle and he, he's killed. There's sort of this press conference moment, and you know, there's sort of talking about, oh, was he a hero? Yeah, he was a hero. And you just see this look on John Wayne's face and you realize that he doesn't buy into that at all, that he realizes it's a total lie that, you know, Henry Fonda's character was a madman, that he was in the wrong. And he kind of has to go out there and lie about what happened because he's part of the military and this is he, this is what he has to do. He winds up, you know, talking about it's about the, you know, the uh, the grunts, the privates. It's about the everyman. It's not about the generals. It's not about the heroes. But I really think that's a really pivotal moment in the Western genre for acknowledging that you know the myth that we're taught, you know, is is wrong. It's not. It's not accurate. I could definitely see where some people might see more of this than I do. Let's put it that way. Is there is a romanticization of the Sioux culture and this whole idea of the quote-unquote noble savage. 
But I don't think that we get that nearly as much in this film. I think that Fuller seems to treat the Sioux more as human beings. We don't necessarily get this whole idea of the noble savage. We don't get the scenes of them talking about, you know, oh, well, we use every part of the buffalo and we're so much better than everybody else. Like, we we don't get any of those kind of moments where you're just like, wow, these people are fantastic. Because you have a character like Crazy Wolf, you know, and you have these flawed characters. So I, I appreciate that we don't get this whole thing because I think that's one of the reasons why some people didn't necessarily like dancers with wolves, uh, was just because of the romanticization of the native American culture and just, Oh, it's so much better. And, you know, you, you can look at something now, this is one of my favorite movies of all time, but I can definitely see that there are problems with it. Something like little big man, where it's just like, Oh wow. You know, the it's, there's so much better. And the white man came and ruined everything. And isn't this tragic? Yes, it's tragic. And yes, white people did ruin a whole lot of shit for native Americans, but there's a matter of, how you can show it in movies and how much you want to romanticize that. And I don't think that Fuller really goes full bore and tries to sell us this whole, like, Oh, this is, you know, these people are fantastic. It feels like everybody is flawed. Maybe they're not as flawed as the military, but the military has characters like captain cook, uh, captain Clark, but the military also has the Ralph Meeker character. The Sioux have characters like the Charles Bronson character, Fantastic. They've got Yellow Moccasin and, and Silent Tongue, but then they have Crazy Wolf. So there's there's assholes everywhere. And it just is nice that he kind of gets to show us that there are assholes everywhere, that there isn't this perfect life, that what O'Meara thinks that he's going to find when he goes out west is not that vision that he probably had. He, he, he And yes, he can never escape from the Yankees. He can never escape from America. But at the same time, I don't think that he necessarily wants to fully escape them because he never really does fully become the Sioux. I think it goes, goes back to that, that idea that Sam Fuller's making, uh, telling a story that's about human beings, you know, about individual psychologies. It's not, you know, he's, he's not primarily interested in, in getting across a, a political message and, and, you know, and probably that's the, the best way to, to, to try to, parse through the the mess of our current political situation is that you have to be you know you have to be dealing with individual people uh, you know who who have their own beliefs and recognizing that everybody's human and 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 you know we all have kind of good things and bad things about us and and you know the the danger of as soon as you you know get political and you start thinking of things in those broader terms is it becomes so easy to to generalize and you know, and, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that Run of the Arrow stands up is because it's it's not generalizing. It is about, you know, human characters. Can we talk about the irony as well when we're talking about here we are in 2016 and, you know, I've brought up Trump a few times. But can we also say how ironic it is that so much of this film is about the white man coming in to build this camp camp? Abraham Lincoln, by the way, but but to build this camp inside of Sioux territory and the problems that they have and the negotiations and all this kind of stuff. And meanwhile, you know, here it is just after Thanksgiving and we've got all of these Native American and other people protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline. And it's 
this whole idea of these white people coming in and trying to have an incursion onto their land. It's just like, God, do things ever change? I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> nope, I guess not. Yep. And what was I doing on Halloween? I was watching the, the John Wayne Marathon on AMC. There's the response. All right, we're going to take a break and play a few interviews. First, you'll hear from Paul Talbot, the author of Bronson's Loose and Bronson's Loose Again. And you'll also hear from Krista and Sam Fuller, Sam Fuller's widow and daughter, after these brief messages. Have you heard of the Roundtable podcast? Here's how it works. We invite authors onto the show. Welcome to the big chair at the Roundtable, Sherry Priest, Tim Pratt, Gail Carriger, Seanan McGuire, Patrick Rothfuss. We ask them questions. What an excellent question. You know, no one's ever asked me that question before. Uh, these are great questions, by the way. Wow, no one's asked me that before. Then we invite writers on to present a story idea. The genre of this story is a fantasy set in a space-like setting. It's a superhero western. It's a steampunk, dieselpunk fusion just because of the timeline that it's in. There's a supernatural horror story with just a bit of a detective thriller peppered into it. And then we workshop the story. You're going to know what your ending is when you know what your conflict is. Brian, I like your I like your Sopranos meets mm-hmm. Iron Punk meets Rome meets psychotic future killers. I think that's that's a, a great mashup. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and I can't believe I hadn't thought of that. Sure. I think I think that's that's a must. I love that idea. And everyone leaves in a state of writerly bliss. You guys have given me so much to work with right now. It's ridiculous. And <laughs> the ideas that I've gotten out of this today, there's just there's the gears are just running. I've I've <laughs> spending with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This time with you guys has made it a whole lot more likely that this will get written. The Roundtable Podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our website, www.RoundTablePodcast.com. The Roundtable Podcast. Literary alchemy. One podcast at a time. Do you desire to add yet another entry in the endless legion of film review podcasts to your playlist? Can you not stand the thought of having any moment of your dull, pointless, waking life intruded upon with the sounds from the real world, and would prefer to listen to a small cast of assholes talk about movies? Then, they must be destroyed on sight! Probably meets your bare minimum requirements. Join Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest hosts as they talk about films from every genre, ranging from the obscure and schlocky to the well-known top-dollar classics. Look for... They must be destroyed on sight! On iTunes, 
Podbean, YouTube, and Facebook. That's... They must be destroyed on sight! Paul, can you tell me a little bit more about your background? Tell me about some of the things that you've written and who you've written for. I've been writing for uh, magazines, uh, articles for magazines for many, many years, going back several decades. I've written articles for Video Watchdog, Cinema Retro, Psychotronic, Films of the Golden Age, Shock Cinema, Scream, and Wings Chop. I specialize in writing about stuff that hasn't been covered before. The way I look at it, I always write in research when I have to. What that means is, let's say I get, I think about a certain movie series or an actor or a director. If I can find a book about them or some articles, then I won't need to write it myself. But if I want to research something, if I want to read a book or find more information about an actor or a particular movie or a movie series, and there's not enough information available, I'll have to go ahead and write the book or write the articles myself. So I've written four books. I've written Bronson's Loose, The Making of the Death Wish Films, Bronson's Loose Again, On the Set with Charles Bronson, Mondo Mandingo, The Falconhurst Books and Films, and The Films of the Dion Quintuplets. I also have done commentary tracks for Blu-ray and DVD releases. Now, which of those came first? Was it the Mondo Mandingo book? Uh, My first book was Bronson's Loose, The Making of the Death Wish Films. What was your first Charles Bronson film? Uh, the first Charles Bronson movie I saw was Kid Galahad. Back in the 1970s, uh, this before VHS or cable TV or anything like that, we just had our local UHF channels. Uh, my mom was a big Elvis Presley fan, and I used to always watch the Elvis movies with her on TV. And once uh, one came on that was Kid Galahad, I liked the movie anyway because Elvis was a boxer in that one, had some good boxing action. And his trainer was played by Charles Bronson. And that was the first time I had ever seen uh, Bronson, and I was intrigued by him ever since then. What is it about Charles Bronson that kind of stands out for you when it comes to seeing him in films? Before Bronson came on the screen, there was never anybody on screen like him. And there's never been anybody on the screen since. He uh, strikes me as just a very striking persona, not just physical, but also his voice uh, pattern, the way he stands, the way he moves. I just always found him to be a very arresting, very charismatic, very mysterious screen persona. So how do you go from seeing Kid Galahad when it's on TV to deciding to write about all the Death Wish films? Well, uh, after I saw Kid Galahad, again, we're talking about the uh, mid-1970s when Bronx was at his peak. Uh, at this period, uh, the movie screens were, the theaters were filled with Bronson movies. TV was constantly showing a Bronson movie, either a recent one or an older one where he had a, just a supporting part, but they would still bill it as a starring Charles Bronson. So uh, I'd always been interested in uh, over the years. I'd always watched all his movies, uh, done some research on him. And then one night I sat down and watched uh, Death Wish, the first Death Wish again. I had seen it a couple times before, but it had been about five years since I'd seen it. So I sat down and watched it and uh, was blown away by it again. I mean, I was a little bit older than I had seen it before. So it really struck me, um, not just the gunplay, but also, you know, it's a very deep, uh, very psychological uh, movie. And after I watched it, I said, wow, that's a great movie. I'd forgotten how good that is. That's a really deep movie. And I decided to revisit the rest of the series. Again, I'd seen them all before. In fact, I was too young to see Death Wish 1 at the theaters, but I saw Death Wish 2, 3, 4, and 5 at the theaters. 
but it had been several years since I've seen them. So one weekend, I went ahead and had a Death Wish uh, marathon. This was before any of them were on DVD. I had to visit about three or four mom-and-pop VHS rental stores to be able to find two, three, four, and five. So I sat down that weekend and watched two, three, four, and five back-to-back. In fact, I think it was like a Saturday afternoon, I sat down and watched three, four, and five right in a row. And after I'd seen all five of them again, I was like, whoa, what a strange series. How the hell did we get from part one to part five? Especially since parts one and three were directed by the same director, but they all have a totally different tone. So I, again, said, and I couldn't find any uh, information on this series, not anything in-depth about the production history. Well, I decided I would like to write an article about Death Wish 1, 2, and 3, but I won't do it unless I can get an interview with Michael Winner, because otherwise there'd be no point to it. So I tracked down Michael Winner's address online, uh, wrote him a letter. I didn't even have an email. I just had a physical letter. So I had to send a mail, uh, had to mail a letter in the post to England, to London, where he was living. And it took a while, but his assistant got back to me and said, Michael Winner will talk to you on this date at this time. Uh, again, he lives in London. I live in the uh, southeastern part of the United States. To call him at the time he wanted to, it was like 6 o'clock in the morning, my time. So I had to get up early with all my notes prepared. We had a great conversation. We talked for about an hour. He had lots of good stories. So I went ahead and wrote an article on Death Wish 1, 2, and 3, sent a query to every single movie magazine. Nobody even wrote me back. Nobody had any interest in even reading the article. And I thought to myself, I bet people would be interested in a, the whole series. I'm going to write a book about the whole Death Wish series. So I spent several years doing this, tried to track down every single cast and crew member that worked on a Death Wish movie, uh, and over several years put the book together. When I finished the book, I again sent a query out to numerous publishers that publish movie-related books, and nobody responded to the query. Nobody even wanted to uh, read a sample chapter. So again, I decided, I'll bet somebody would want to read this. I bet there are some other Death Wish fans out there. So I did some research on self-publishing. And so the first Bronson's Loose, I self-published it. It got good response. It was able to build up a really good um, cult following. It, um, it continues to sell. In fact, it's been out for 10 years. And every single royalty check I have um, increases. You know, the Bronson fans, the Death Wish fans continue to grow. Michael Winner had worked with Charles Bronson on those Death Wish films, but he seems to have worked with Bronson the most as far as being a, a, a director that Bronson would go with. Right. He's at, well, he's actually in second place. Yeah, J. Lee Thompson directed nine Bronson movies. Uh, Michael Winner directed six. So uh, Michael Winner is in second place in terms of directing the most um, Charles Bronson movies. So what brought you to doing Bronson's Loose again? Bronson's Loose again came about, again, over a, a 10-year period. Uh, the first... Bronson's Loose book sold really well. Um, a lot of people I would get, especially when I got on Facebook, I got a lot of friends, Facebook friends who you know would say, we love that book, lots of good information. When are you going to do another one? And I initially wasn't interested in doing a second book. You know, a book is a massive undertaking. But then a friend of mine contacted me and said, my cousin, a friend of mine named Horace Cordier, I know him on Facebook, he sent me an email and said, my cousin wrote the Charles Bronson movie, The Evil That Men Do. If you're interested in writing an article about that, I can put you in touch with him. So I did. I uh, got in touch with the screenwriter. His name is John Crowther. We talked, and I put together an article on the making of The Evil That Men Do, uh, and again, sent it around to every single 
uh, magazine. Nobody even wanted to read it to consider publishing it. So I said, well, I really enjoy doing that article. I like doing my Bronson research again. I'm going to go ahead and do a sequel to Bronson's Loose. I'm going to contact uh, – I'm going to try to contact every single living actor and crew member who worked with Bronson. I'm going to do a, a follow-up book. I don't, I'm going to see how much information I can gain before these people start passing away. Uh, Bronson's Loose, again, again, I was more skilled than when I did the first one. I had more contacts. I had more connections, more research skills. So Bronson's Loose, again, took me right at exactly two years from the time I started researching the first chapter to when I finished the final proofs. And Bronson's Loose, again, uh, because the first book had gained like a cult following, a publisher called Bear Manor Media, they specialize in entertainment books. The owner got in touch with me and said, I really like your first book. If you ever want to write another book about Bronson, you know, I'd like to publish it. So that's how I set up the uh, Bronson's again uh, was published. This time I had a publisher published through a company called Bear Manor Media. Death Wish films, they went over a period of what, like 20 years? Yeah, the first one was 1974. The last one was 1993. And when it came to Bronson's Zeus again, what time period were you focusing on? The same period and the films in between or, or the earlier stuff or what was it? Yeah, Bronson's Loose again. Um, I decided I was only going to do a chapter on the movies that I could obtain at least one uh, interview. If I couldn't locate somebody to interview them, I wouldn't do a chapter on the movie. So Bronson's Loose again um, is kind of like it's a sequel to Bronson's Loose, meaning I, I pick up right after the release of the first uh, Death Wish movie. So it covers from after the first Death Wish movie up until Bronson's death. 74, 75, up to when did he pass away? 2005? Uh, 2003. Okay. What are some of your favorite Bronson films during that period of time? Some of my favorite Bronson films that I cover in Bronson's Loose Again are Hard Times, which is a, that one's an absolute masterpiece. That one turned out to be, that's one of my favorite chapters in the book. I got a lot of information on that one. So Hard Times, uh, From Noon Till Three, another favorite. That one's a very strange, very offbeat uh, Bronson movie. Uh, I really enjoyed writing that chapter because I was able to get in touch with Frank Gilroy, who wrote and directed the film. And I was able to speak with him shortly before he passed. So I was happy to be able to do that because uh, he had never been interviewed before about that film. When I spoke with him, he was surprised that anybody remembered that film and wanted to talk about it. So I was very glad to be able to include um, his interview in the book. Borderline is a, another interesting movie I like, a very atypical Bronson movie with Bronson as a uh, border patrolman. Bronson's Loose, again, also includes a lot of information on the Death Wish movies that I had found out after writing the first one. I interviewed uh, David Engelbach, who wrote Death Wish 2, and I interviewed Robert Sher Robin Sherwood and Silvana Gallardo, who play the rape victims in Death Wish 2. So, of course, their stories were very interesting. And again, going back to other movies of mine that are personal favorites during this era, uh, Ten to Midnight, uh, which is a cult favorite. It's a canon movie where Bronson is stalking a uh, psychopath who commits murders while in the nude. The Evil That Men Do is another favorite of mine from that era. Very sleazy, very um, sadistic movie. Uh, Kenja Day, Forbidden Subjects, Bronson's last canon movie. That one's also a favorite of mine. Very underrated movie. The Sea Wolf television film where he plays, uh, it's an adaptation of the famous Jack London novella, The Sea Wolf. Um, so those are some of my favorite Bronson movies that I cover in the second 
book in Bronson's Loose Again. Now, I want to talk to you. You had mentioned Michael Winner, and I know that he directed Bronson in uh, Chateau's Land. But that was not the first time that Charles Bronson was to play a Native American. Can you tell me how this uh, Polish expat came to play Native Americans in American films? Yeah, of course. Nowadays, when we make um, when they make westerns, of course, the Native Americans are played by actual Native Americans. Uh, back in the old times, they wouldn't uh, very rarely would Native Americans be playing the Native Americans. They would usually find um, well be played by Caucasians with heavy makeup on. And of course, Bronson fits that category. I think Bronson started getting these um, Native American roles because again, he had that very interesting face, a very structured face with those prominent cheekbones, which somewhat gives the appearance of a Native American face. Native Americans uh, quite frequently have very pronounced cheekbones. Of course, also in the Westerns, uh, the the Native Americans were always very scantily clad. And of course, Bronson had a spectacular physique, certainly one of the best physiques of any actor of that generation. So I think that was... um, Part of the reason why I got cast as Native Americans. Also, uh, Bronson was uh, fanatic about his tan. He was always constantly tan. Uh, with his tan, there wasn't that much of a need to put heavy body makeup on him. So I think uh, his physique, the structure of his face, and his perpetual tan encouraged casting directors to cast him as a Native American. So what was his first time out as a Native American? His first time out as a Native American was in the movie Apache, 1954, directed by Robert Aldrich, and it stars uh, Burt Lancaster. Bronson actually has a like a featured role in that one. So that was his first Native American role. His next one was Drumbeat in 1954, which stars Alan Ladd. Drumbeat was written and directed by Delmer Daves. Drumbeat is a very, very underrated Western. I recommend everybody check that one out. Drumbeat was the first time that Charles Bronson was actually billed as Charles Bronson. Previously, he was billed in the movies as Charles Buczynski. In Drumbeat, he plays uh, the lead villain, and he's fantastic in that movie. Drumbeat, in fact, I think if Drumbeat had gotten more publicity, uh, I think Bronson would have been nominated for uh, Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. But, of course, he wasn't. At that time, there was no real big push to get him any type of acclaim or awards. But those are the first times he played Native Americans were in Apache and Drumbeat. When was that time when he was kind of finally recognized? It took a long time. In He did a lot of uh, featured roles. In 1958, Bronson actually had the lead in four outstanding B-pitchers, Showdown at Boot Hill, Machine Gun Kelly, Gang War, and When Hell Broke Loose. But the movie and Bronson, but the movies and Bronson received little notice. That same year, he got the title role in the TV series Man with a Camera. But it would be another ten years before Bronson actually became a star. And what can you tell me about Run of the Arrow? Run of the Arrow, a 1957 western, written, produced, and directed by Samuel Fuller, featured the first of Charles Bronson's two performances as a scantily clad Native American in a brutally violent western. Samuel Fuller's original title for the film was The Last Bullet. Fuller explained, quote, that's what started me thinking about the whole story. What happened to the last cartridge fired in the Civil War? Unquote. The run of the arrow title refers to a real-life Sioux endurance test. In the film, Rod Steiger stars as an embittered ex-Confederate soldier who shuns the United States and goes 
off on his own and becomes in, involved with the uh, the Sioux Native Americans. Run of the Arrow was the first movie role that Bronson got via his then new agent Lester Salco. It was Bronson's only film of that year, but he did 10 TV episodes that year. In Run of the Arrow, Bronson plays Chief Blue Buffalo. He was 35 years old at the time. His character is given a good visual introduction to the film. We first see Chief Blue Buffalo sitting in the shadows. Then he stands and steps into the light half naked. Bronson first appears 35 minutes into the film. His total screen time is about 15 minutes scattered throughout the second and third acts. Bronson is excellent in Run of the Arrow, and he burns a hole in the screen with his charisma and physique. There had never been anyone else like him in the movies before or since. Bronson's astonishing physique was all the more impressive when he shared the frame with the portly Rod Steiger as the hero. Bronson and Steiger had each had supporting roles in the earlier widescreen color western Jubal in 1956, and they would star as hero and villain respectively in Love and Bullets in 1979. In One of the Arrow, Steiger spoke with an unconvincing Irish brogue. For Love and Bullets, he used an irritating stutter. Sarita Montiel played Steiger's Indian squaw love interest in Run of the Arrow. She looked good enough to be used extensively in the promotional materials, but her voice was considered weak, and she was dubbed by Angie Dickinson, who later appeared with Bronson in an episode of his TV show Man with a Camera and in the feature Death Hunt. Italian-American actor Frank Dakova, who played Indians on F Troop and the movie Johnny Firecloud, plays an Indian here. The next year, he appeared as a non-Indian in Machine Gun Kelly with Bronson. Many scenes in Run of the Arrow were filmed in one continuous shot. One dialogue scene between Steiger and Brian Keith runs for four minutes. Run of the Arrow has an above-average amount of violence for the time, with a good bit of blood being shown, as well as many deaths via flaming arrow. There is also a strange scene where a guy falls headfirst into quicksand that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Rumor has it that the skinning torture of Ralph Miko was much more gory and cuts released in some territories. The close-up of Ralph Miko getting shot in the forehead is one of those violent images in screen history up to that point. And at one point, it's almost like a Mondo movie because we actually see a live fish cooked alive on screen. That's another strange, uh, disturbing moment in the film. Run of the Arrow has a cult following. For, for a long time, it was difficult to see. It was hard to find a good print. Nowadays, it's available as a DVD-R from Warner Archive, and it's a restoration compiled from several prints found by a private collector. Some of the early scenes on the disc were taken from a 16mm print, hence the grainy look. The gory close-up of Ralph Meeker getting shot in the forehead, that shot was actually culled from one of the 16mm prints, because the 35mm print uh, did not have it. One of the Arrow did poorly at American theaters when it was first released, but it gained a strong following in France, the country where Sam Fuller was first idolized. It played in only one Paris theater, but in only two weeks, it was seen by 46,233 ticket buyers. One of the Arrow was re-released in France in 1959 and would play theaters there again. In the early 1970s, the Bronson cult had become so insatiable in France that a half dozen of his movies, including the old Run of the Arrow, was screening simultaneously at Paris cinemas to large crowds. The original advertising art for Under the Arrow didn't show Bronson's name or display his image, but the new posters and marquees gave him top billing and highlighted his image. Bronson later made Chateau's Land, where he would once again wear a skimpy loincloth, but also his by then famous mustache. So what are some of the other favorite Bronsons that you have throughout the years? 
in terms of the early stuff, uh, I love Drumbeat a lot. Uh, Machine Gun Kelly is great. Machine Gun Kelly uh, shows him in a different light. He plays the famous uh, gangster Machine Gun Kelly, but um, he's also a psychically disturbed character. You know, it's it's certainly an interesting portrayal for Bronson. Showdown at Boot Hill from 1958, another one of Bronson's early leading roles. That's a very interesting um, Western. Uh, let me see. Uh, Violent City, very strange Italian uh, crime film. The Mechanic. So those there are some of my favorite of the, the Bronson movies. Is it one of those things where if I were to ask you tomorrow what your favorite Bronsons are, I might get a different list? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Because I'm constantly um, – I've seen all of Bronson's movies. And I'm constantly rewatching them. And then, of course, you um, – every time you rewatch it, you see something else. You know, I like to watch him and see his mannerisms. And you like to – and I like to watch them and see and try to determine what was going on in his life, his career at that time. You know, you mentioned writing these articles and kind of sending out the word, you know, would you like to, to run these in your magazine? And nobody biting at least twice now. And I'm curious, do you think that Bronson just – isn't getting the respect that he deserves? Um, Well, Bronson is definitely a cult figure. You know, the definition of a cult figure is most people or the average person doesn't know who he is, but the people that do know who he is are obsessed with him, are fanatical about him, like to collect almost everything or at least watch everything that he was in. For example, you might go to work tomorrow and ask somebody if they've ever heard of Charles Bronson. They're like, who the hell are you talking about? But when Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. <laughs> But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. You do find somebody who does know who he is. You know, that person's going to be obsessed with him. And the cult does continue to grow... When I wrote the first Bronson's Loose, I thought most of the people reading it were going to be uh, 45 and above. But um, I'm constantly getting emails and Facebook friends by people who are very young. You know, we're talking guys who are 12 to 25. So, of course, he has a lot an older audience, too. But everyday younger kids are also discovering Bronson. So that's how a cult continues to grow. I go to a lot of these um movie conventions, memorabilia shows, and I run into a lot of young guys who have Bronson tattoos and Bronson t-shirts. His cult is definitely um, growing. Also, we've got this trend now where there's a lot of these Blu-ray boutique labels that are putting out a lot of movies on uh, on Blu-ray, and uh, many, many Bronson titles are being released on Blu-ray. So again, his cult is, is continuing to grow. Yeah, you mentioned that you're doing some of these commentaries. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, In the past uh, year, I've done uh, commentary tracks for three Bronson movies. I did the commentary track for the Blu-ray of Mr. Majestic, 
which came out from Signal Entertainment. Uh, that's a British company, so uh, that is Region B. And then I did commentary tracks for the Blu-ray of Death Wish 2, which came out from Shout Factory. That was the first time that the uncut version of Death Wish 2 has been released in the United States on a physical media format. And then the last one I did that just came out two weeks ago, I did the commentary track for Kino Lorba's Blu-ray of Cabo Blanco. And that's a good release also because Cabo Blanco was one of those movies that uh, did not get much attention when it first came out. And it's one of those movies that sort of slipped into like a quasi-public domain status. It's not in the public domain, but a lot of these fly-by-night labels would put it out on VHS and DVD in a terrible presentation. That movie was a widescreen movie, and this new Kino Lorber release presents the movie in the widescreen form in a beautiful restoration. The first time Cabo Blanco has looked this good on a home video release. What's been the reaction to Bronson's Loose Again? The, the reaction to Bronson's Loose Again, the second book, has been tremendous. Um, when I did the first book, it was before I was really involved with social media. It was before I was on Facebook. When I was promoting Bronson's Loose Again, I was on Facebook and used uh, different types of social media to, to promote it. And the response has been really uh tremendous before the book came out when i first announced it there was a lot of excitement from people who had read the first one and it's been out uh right uh came out in thanksgiving of last year so we're getting close to a year so during the past year it's uh sold really well gotten a lot of attention um a lot of people really enjoy it so i'm really proud of that i want to ask you about a few of your other titles can you tell me about the uh is it the dion quintuplets yeah, yes. I did a book called The Films of the Dion Quintuplets. Very unusual subject, much different than the other stuff I've written about. The Dion Quintuplets, again, a very obscure cult topic. Uh, the Dion Quintuplets were five quintuplet girls who were born in the 1930s in Canada. They were the first quintuplets um, who lived. And they became a phenomenon. They've for forgotten now, but at the time they were a phenomenon. They were constantly... Um, in advertisements, there were Dion Quintuplets dolls, paper dolls, and they actually uh, – 20th Century Fox, a major movie studio, signed them to star in some movies. Even though they were, they were little babies, couldn't – certainly couldn't act at all. So in my, they were some of the most unusual movies released by a major studio. So the films of the Dion Quintuplets is a book I wrote that covered that uh, strange phenomenon of how these uh, quintuplet girls became movie stars in major motion pictures. I had for that one. I had to do a lot of research. I had to track down microfilm and hard copies of uh, movie fan magazines of the 1930s. How did you even get turned on to them? Again, a very strange thing. I was looking in a book and saw a lobby card for a movie called Five of a Kind, starring the Dion Quintuplets, and I was like, "What? What? By 20th Century Fox?" And I'm like, "What is this?" So I started digging deeper, and again, I wanted to know more about it couldn't find anything really about it, so I had to go ahead and write the book myself and find the information myself. I want to ask you about Mondo Mandingo. How did you come to write that one? Mondo Mandingo, the Falconhurst Books and Films. Uh, that one got started back in the 1970s. I would see the novel Mandingo in all the drugstores, and I would see – there was a, a Mandingo, the novel, written, came out in, in the 1950s. It was about a plantation in the antebellum south where they bred slaves. 
and it covers all these strange sexual relationships between the masters and the slaves. The book became a bestseller. It stayed in print and paperback for decades, and it spawned not only numerous book sequels, official book sequels, but also a whole slew of it's called slave fiction, a whole slew of books about the antebellum South that dealt with all the sleazy master and slave relationships in the antebellum South. Uh, back in the 80s, I saw the Mandingo movie on HBO and I, it was, I was blown away by it. I'd always been fascinated by it. And then one time I sat down and read the Mandingo novel. It's a massive novel. It's over a thousand pages, the uncut version. And I was just stunned. I was like, what kind of person came up with this story? And how did this phenomenon start? So that one, again, I spent many, many years researching uh, the book, uh, the movie. So it covers the Mandingo book, how it was created. It covers the entire series of Mandingo books. It covers the publishing history that was going on while the books were in print. It covers, there was actually a Broadway play. There was a Broadway version of Mandingo. It lasted just a few performances. It's uh, Dennis Hopper was the star of it. Actually, I actually I had to go to the New York Public Library because, of course, the play was never published. I had to go there and actually read the handwritten script that the uh, author had written. So I so that's how I did the chapter on that. And then I interviewed Richard Fleischer, who directed the Mandingo movie. And I also do a chapter on Drum, which is the sequel to Mandingo movie. I interviewed the director, Steve Carver. I interviewed the star, uh, Ken Norton. Just did a tremendous amount of research on all of that. And I also covered what I call slave exploitation movies, all the other movies that were um, inspired or were ripoffs of Mandingo. So Mondo Mandingo, The Falconer's Books and Films, that's a book I'm very, very proud of. A tremendous amount of research went into it, and that's a very, very fascinating story. I think we're going to have to do an episode on Mandingo. Great, great. Mandingo, the movie, it was considered, as many people consider, to be a terrible, one of the worst movies ever made. I disagree. I think Mandingo is an absolute masterpiece. And I was fortunate to be able to interview director Richard Fleischer, who directed the film, and he was very, very happy that somebody wanted to talk about the film seriously and who liked the film because he had been absolutely devastated that the film had gotten such a horrendous critical reception over the years. Paul, where can we keep up with you? Um, you can find me. Um, I'm on Facebook under Paul Talbot because there's a lot of Paul Talbots. But if you like movies, you can probably just look up Paul Talbot and you'll see that we have multiple friends. Um, I also have a page on Facebook. Uh, called Bronson's Loose Again. It was originally done to promote the book, but now I also use it to uh, talk about all kinds of uh, topics about Bronson. I'll find like an old movie ad or an old uh, picture of Bronson, an old uh, video clip of Bronson. I'll post that on there and people will, uh, other Bronson fans will jump in and we'll talk about that. So you can find me on Facebook under Paul Talbot or also um, under Facebook under Bronson's Loose Again. Well, thank you, Paul, so much. I really appreciate this. Okay. Thank you, Mike.
have all the same friends. I just looked at the people you, uh, 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 they're all in a full of life. Uh, Monty Hellman, Billy Friedkin, Joe Dante. Yeah, you had some amazing folks in there, and it was so good to, to see them reading from Sam's work. They brought such life to it. Isn't that great? And uh, it's, it's uh, you know, those are real images. It's like Pandora's box. Uh, we open, and we have so much material from World War II that Sam shot not only the concentration camps, but civilians. It's like uh, Rossellini's film, uh, Germany, uh, uh, Year Zero. And we have it all shot by Sam with the same Valen Howe uh, that he used to uh, film the concentration camp. That he got thanks to the sale of his book, The Dark Page. And he let his mother keep all the money. He said, just sent me a bottle of whiskey, cigars, and a Bell & Howell camera. No, he received the Bell & Howell camera in May in Bamberg, Germany, which is near Nuremberg, where the famous trials took place. The Nuremberg trials. And as a matter of fact, Sam and all members from the Big Red One were asked to stand behind each Nazi war criminal. And Sam was so anxious to see his brother Ray in Paris, and he always regretted that he didn't stand. If you look at the rushes of the Nuremberg trials, you see the patch of the Big Red One, 16th Infantry, 1st Division. By the way, I made sure to include that footage in A Fuller Life, but you have to look closely. Be aware of the Big Red One patch that resurfaces constantly. I loved how you used the backgrounds while you were filming the, your subjects and just those were as much a character or you know such a good setting for them as they were were reading through their material. Absolutely. It should have been a fuller life starring the shack because what a wonderful location that was. And my mother and I preserved it since the day my father died and left it untouched. And we've kept it sort of as a shrine. You know, over the years, we've been requested by archives to get that material, but um, we've decided to keep it here for the time being. And luckily so, because we couldn't have had an art director put a better set together. You shoot it in such a way that it looks like the, it's this mausoleum almost. But I'm curious, how big is the shack? Probably uh, 90 square feet, I believe, something like that. It's not that big. It's really packed, and that's why it was tricky to shoot the entire film in that confined space, you know, and it was important to switch it up visually for the audience to be able to see every corner of the shack, pretty much. Yeah, and it's uh, been untouched since the day he passed away. My mother and I decided to keep it as is, and um, I've been slowly excavating through everything and doing an inventory and slowly archiving it, but that's one of the downfalls of being an only child is um, it's a lonely world in there. It's just me and my pops hanging in the shack like the good old days. <laughs> he used to have me do tasks for him in the shack, just, uh, you know, undo paper clips and little things. But I did spend some time with him there as a child, and it just brings back great memories to be back in there, and I feel like he's still around. The spirit's wafting around in there. In fact, when I enter the shack, I just say, hey, Dad, as if you were sitting behind the typewriter. When you walk in, does it still smell of cigars? A beautiful smell, a stale cigar, and old paper. Yeah, as you were showing some of those shots, especially the, the part in A Fuller Life of all the, the scripts, the unmade scripts and the story ideas that he had registered, I was just like, oh man, I wish that I could just spend a, a week in there reading through some of those papers. That must just be amazing. Oh, I'm th the shack, I, it's like quick 
stand in there, actually. You can't just walk in and walk out. It's very rare that I can just enter the shack to grab something and move without picking up another piece of paper I haven't read yet and start diving into it. And next thing you know, the afternoon's shot. There's so much material. It's really overwhelming. In fact, you know, it's um, pretty much, it's difficult because it's a big legacy and I'd like to really make the most of it for him and test off these scripts and have them all made. And it's a matter of strategically putting them in the right hands and finding the right people because when I read his material, it's, you know, I'm reminded that everything he wrote actually was ahead of his time and it's timeless. There are stories that can be told over and over again. And, and for much I know, I wouldn't even change dialogue. They're ready to go. A lot of them have um, notes, you know, for shooting. That his camera angles planned out and many of them are just ready to go. Sadly, it's, it's taken time just because of the way the system works and no one's going to cut you a fat check to just do it, but I think uh, eventually a few of the fuller films will be, will be out and about again from new ones. As a matter of fact, it's been intact since we left for Paris after the bullshit with White Dog happened, and we just closed the office and left everything, and we came back when uh, Sam was too sick to go back to work in his office. We came back in 1995, and Sam had had the stroke in Paris. And when he was strong enough to travel, uh, I came back here with a friend, and Samantha was studying at the Sorbonne. She remained in Paris, and we came back here. And I actually wrote a third phase with a dying man, his autobiography. And then Samantha, when we were in Calo Viveri, Samantha said where he got honored because it's close to Falkenau, which is called Sokolov now. And that's where the Big Red One liberated the camps, Camp Falkenau. And Captain Richmond said, Fuller, you still have that camera that your mother sent you? And he said, yes. And he started filming and he said the stench was so strong of all these bodies. They were holding a, I mean, it, it, it was a gruesome sight, you know? And, uh, you know, they have an exhibition that's curated by a Frenchman from the Memorial de la Shoah that's traveling around. It's in Atlanta, Georgia, I think, right now. And it's called Filming the Camps. And it has George Stevens, John Ford, and Samuel Fuller. Well, George Stevens and John Ford were asked to film uh, by the Army. But Sam... It's his own personal, I mean, he filmed like a writer already or, and like a director. You know what I mean? With it, nobody was behind his back saying, you should film this and film this. I mean, it's like riding with a camera. And he said his hands were shaking so much. Uh, it was just awful, you know, but he, he just had to capture with his camera, uh, you know. And he, he, he took other films too of civilians in Belgium and Germany. That's mind-boggling, you know, just like the Rossellini film, Germany, uh, year zero, like Samantha told you. And and people forget when Sam did the Big Red One, uh, you know, all, all those people who made war films, actually who saved the Big Red One. When Sam did the Big Red One, uh, World War II films were not fashionable. It, it had yet there. It was more all about the Vietnam experience at that point. And uh, Sam had a Vietnam script that he couldn't get sold, and... Uh, 
Billy Friedkin and uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich had a company that they had, and they wanted Sam to make the movie for them. But the company dissolved. They had some, you know, but they had at one point, uh, Martin Scorsese was supposed to play Vinci, the part uh, uh, Bobby Kerr and uh, Bobby DiCicco played, and uh, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. They were all supposed to be actors in there. And uh, but that's how it started. Uh, was Billy Friedkin and Peter Bogdanovich being involved at one point, you know, in Coppola? But it got made, and uh, when it came out, it went to the Cannes Film Festival in 1980. And the jury was going to split the prize between Kurosawa and uh, and Fuller, the two old masters. And uh, uh, our lousy luck was that was Kirk Douglas was the uh, uh, jury the head of the jury, and he said, every every year we Americans come with a war film, and he vetoed it down at the pound door. And uh, and this, this gosh, you know, how long did it take Sam to get this movie made? And this is, you know, just to segue back into, wrap it around to a fuller life, by the way. You know, besides a fuller life, the Big Red One, I'd say, is his most autobiographical film, talking about his survival experience. And I just find it very unfortunate the way it was released and trimmed down. And thanks to Krista, it was finally restored. It took me 20 years to bang on at everybody's door. Until Richard Schickel came along. And and, and Brian Jameson from Warner Brothers. That's right. Good thing that was done. And uh, because, you know, honestly, I mean, my father, I, I find a little bit of him throughout all the films dispersed through different characters that he created. But, um, you know, speaking of autobiographical films, would be The Big Red One, and then a little bit of Park Row in there, his ode to journalism. What was your dad's relationship like with Lee Marvin on The Big Red One? You can imagine taking two veterans, putting them back on the combat team together. And I got to tell you that the other guys from The Big Red One had quite an intense boot camp with these two ringleaders. But yeah, I mean, they had some uh, wonderful time together, and he always had Lee Marvin in mind to play this part. At one point, I know it was discussed for John Wayne, I believe, or there were there were different casting ideas over the years of the process of making this film. Good thing it took so long because Lee Marvin was just right for the part when the film finally got made. He was just so salty, nice and crusty, just how he wanted it. Yeah, I can see, you know, my father had General Terry Allen during the World War War. World War II was his ringleader. And so I can see a lot how he mir- mirrored General General Taylor and, um, and, and Lee Marvin's character and actually mirrored himself a lot. And I can see how he broke himself down into all the characters in the Big Red One, which I find so interesting. Just seen through different lines of dialogue, which were things he would have said himself, but he dispersed them rightfully so, amongst all four of the horsemen and with their general, with Lee Marvin. Yeah, and you couldn't really get a better cast of young male actors than the people that were in the Big Red One at that time. Yeah, fantastic. It, it, it really worked out well. Of course, I was way too little at the time to realize what was going on. And uh, it was a real pleasure to hang out with these guys on set <laughs> and and be on, on a war set, actually, as a little girl and be able to realize that this is actually what my father had been through because you hear stories but it's a whole other ballpark when you see it with your own eyes and you walk on set and you see bodies strewn on the ground and guys cleaning their rifle and it's just a surreal experience in the sense 
I, I don't know of any other veteran who went on to recreate the battle on film. And I can imagine for Lee Marvin and my father, that must have been, you know, very emotional to relive these moments. And it's just amazing to know that your dad was involved in so many of these crucial battles and so many of these important moments of World War II. Yeah, it's, it's really mind-blowing to think how someone cannot be completely shell-shocked. And even though he suffered from what at the time was called war hysteria and now PTSD, he was able, um, you know, cathartically to to heal himself by telling the story, which I find just uh, a wonderful way to cure your, your problems is to channel that through art. For years, so many of your dad's films were not available. I mean, it was really tough to get your hands on things like Helen Hiawater and, and even um, I think Meryl's Marauders was tough to get. Verboten, I had to pick up from the UK and have it imported. Yeah, I don't understand how that whole system works with the studio rights. You know, it's a big blur. We, we don't have any control over his song. I like how you use the clips from the films. I mean, the, so well in integrating them with his own story and just showing just how he put himself into all of these different films. It was amazing. Right, right. So I, it was not, so to say, a documentary about his films, but you can actually understand the films he made by understanding his life. What was that moment for you when you said, I really need to, or sorry, we really need to make this documentary about Sam. We really need to create a fuller life. What was that, that moment for you? Well, a very personal motivation in the sense that, you know, my father had me at the age of 63 and I always wanted to have him around forever. And when it came time for a centennial in 2012, I had an urge to have a big celebration for a centennial. And it wasn't going to be a YouTube video or a, just a sit-down dinner. I wanted to make something that would stay forever. And actually, I made the film also for my daughter, which is his legacy. So it was a very personal urge that got me to make this film. Besides having all this fantastic material, you know, I was around when Krista and, and Jerry were putting together a fuller life after my father passed away. And, we had to edit 2,000 pages. That 2,000 pages, they edited down into a 600-page book. I used this book and edited it down to an 80-page script, basically. So I knew the material in and out, and I always felt it would be a great audio book, so to say. Um, I, because, you know, Jerry would read passages out loud, and I thought, gosh, this sounds so great with my father's voice. I always wanted to hear his words spoken again with his voice. So I asked the readers to channel him. And I think they did a very good job at that, especially Bill Duke. Yes. Yeah. Well, I love how so many of the uh, narrators uh, slash actors were there with their big, big cigar. There was always a stogie sitting in the ashtray next to them, ready for grabs. And some some of them did feel compelled to even light it, such as Vim Vendors, who took the smallest stub in the tray. Vim Vendors was delightful, and Vim has been a friend of ours. Since 1972, since we did Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street. And I loved how Vim wore the white jacket in honor of my father, who loved to wear a white jacket as well. He came dressed for the part. Mm -hmm. We weren't going to ask him to read the uh, 
liberation of concentration camps, you know, and put him on a German guilt trip because he had nothing to do with it. Well, he still had a German section to read, though. Yeah, but he had the fun one with Marlene Dietrich, you know. Uh, uh, Can you imagine how hard I realized, you know, how hard it must have been for Marlene being German to entertain American troops? You know, I mean, some people, some soldiers after it was right after the battle were going to shoot her. I mean, you know, it was horrible. Sam knocked at her door, you know, when she in her dressing room right after a battle. And uh, he was still in uniform and smelled urine. And, you know, and he said, I'd, I'd like, uh, you know, for you to bring a message home, uh, Miss Dietrich. And she looked at him, poor boy, what, what do you want? He said, to Charles K. Feldman, that was her agent, too. And she looked. My God, a soldier in from Hollywood, somebody here like that. And it was on, he said, just cigars. Tell Charlie Feldman, just cigars. And he did get the box. It's a, it's a great story, you know? Yeah, for those who haven't seen A Fuller Life, I was happy to pick that one out. You know, it was pretty difficult to leave many great stories out, actually, that are in A Fuller Life, uh, that did make it into A Fuller Life, that are in a third phase. What was your original cut of A Fuller Life like? I imagine it could have run for hours and hours, but you must have really had to hold yourself back. Absolutely. Instead of an 80-minute 80, 80 film, yeah, it could, it could have been an 800-minute eight, film, easily. In any case, yeah, it was difficult to cut it down, but I did want to keep the story punchy in the spirit of my father who made you know punchy films. And the last thing I wanted to do was do a very long documentary that could put anyone to sleep. Right now, it was really hard to leave out. I found myself really fascinated by his war years, which is a big third of, of Fuller Life, actually. And of a third phase, too. People love the war even, stuff. Even in though that was only uh, um, three and a half years of his lifespan, it just took up such a major part in his life because of the way it affected the rest of his journey. This is really what led me to do this new documentary called Organized Insanity because um, we un- uncovered about two and a half hours of war footage and I was only able to include about 10 minutes in a fuller life. And I felt compelled to do something with this remaining footage. And so this new documentary is a little bit of a fuller life part two, a continuation, and looking more in depth at his war experience. And this time I'm going to take the remaining footage which, as we were saying, is is very reminiscent of Rossellini's Germany Year Zero. But this is a real thing, the real people, how they're coping with the ruins. And actually, it's a very optimistic film because, surprisingly enough, the women and children that are featured are always smiling at the camera, you know, amongst the ruins. Yeah, it's amazing how how the minute the camera uh, turns on the faces of the people behind ruins, you know, they brighten up and, and good thing... Sam had the eye of a filmmaker and also filmed a lot of street signs and did, you know, he actually, somehow he was doing master shots and close-ups. It's, it's, so it's really well put together. And um, this time I'm going to pair it up with his, the letters he wrote to his family while he was at the front lines. Um, so I have some wonderful letters he wrote to his mother and brother and cartoons and clippings. And this time uh, this is what's going to be paired up with the, the remaining footage. I love those cartoons that you use in A Fuller Life. They, it just adds so much to, to it. Plenty more. I can't get enough of them. And just to leave them sitting in a box, I really want to bring them to the big screen and, and share that sense of humor, actually, with everybody. Because even though it's a, they're, they're very dark times, somehow you manage to, to get a, a laugh out of it. 
It's all about perspective and keeping a sense of humor. He was such an optimist. Well, he was an optimist. On the other hand, he had a very short fuse at time. At times, I don't think his uh, post-traumatic stress ever left him. That's right. That's right. He did have a short fuse, but he was able to laugh about it. <laughs> you know, you blow the fuse and then you laugh it off, you know? Able to move on one foot in front of the other and keep going strong. Are you going to use kind of the same approach of the different narrators for it? Yeah, this time I believe I haven't selected the narrators yet, so um, I, I don't think I'm going to go with actors this time. Actually, I'm still looking into how I'm going to handle the reading part, but I believe it would be interesting to have present-day veterans read his war letters from World War II to show us the same shit over and over again. You know, telling his life story from childhood all the way to his death, pretty much, it's interesting to have different voices for that, but this is just one part of his life, and so I think it should be the same realm of readers to, to be reading this part. And so, yeah, right now I'm, I'm you know, going through all the documentation he had, I'm drawing out a timeline of exactly where he was, when he was, and I'm pulling this together. Well, I love that part in the documentary, too, where he was talking and how he had the offers for the bigger films, the bigger casts, and just chose to stay more independent so that he could tell the stories that he wanted to tell. I, f I was so glad to hear him but say that's that. That's true. He, he turned down the Young Lions, you know. He turned down Patton? Twice, in 1968. He just said, I, I hated the son of a bitch so much, I, j I just couldn't be ironic, you know. I worked on being ironic about the whole thing, but it just stayed with me. It, the emotion stayed with me. I just had to turn it down twice. Well, I mean, if you're going to invest, you know, so much time and, and, and creativity in a project, you better be very passionate about it. I think he knew better than that. Than to throw, not but he loved, out and take, take a, he loved the end result of that, and he liked, he liked the finished film. He, he thought, you know, and Coppola, I think, was almost fired because his script was too ironic showing the guy is such a big egomaniac walking up the stairs, you know? You mentioned this earlier, but when did your family move over to France? Was that, what, 82, 83, somewhere around there? Absolutely, in the early 80s, right after... Um, 82. So basically, Sam, Sam lived there twice. He lived there for a year in, the, in 1965, the year he met my mother, and then they came back to the States together. He sent her a one-way ticket to come meet her here in Los Angeles, and she didn't turn back. And then we moved again in the early 80s when I was a little girl after White Dog. And it's funny how the film was so well received in France because it had been shelved in the United States. And when we went to Paris, it was just opening when we moved there and there were lines around the block to go see White Dog. I still don't understand the controversy around I White Dog because I... I knew of it going in to see it, and when I finally saw it, I was like, I don't see anything racist about this film whatsoever. In fact, quite the opposite. We just showed it at the Roxy and, and in San Francisco about a week ago, and uh, in San Francisco, and uh, we had a very interesting discussion whether racism is something inbred or taught. I mean, whether it's something taught inbred, or, or if you're born with it. To mankind, not, not to animals. <laughs> and and I think, you know, and it's an old tradition, the fables of La Fontaine actually goes back to Egypt, to Aesop, where you use animals to talk about the human condition. 
you know, all the favorites by La Fontaine and Aesop and all of that. And uh, Roman Gary, who wrote uh, the short story uh, first for Life magazine, uh, White Dog, uh, he then wrote a book. He, he really had a dog, uh, a German Shepherd. And whenever uh, that nice, beautiful animal saw a person of color, it may have been Indian or anybody who was, had a dark skin, the dog became like a, a berserk, a wild it's animal. It's not like the white dog was Sam's invention, you know. So, so for him to take the blame to make a racist film, he was telling it as it was. You know, he always had the mind of a of a journalist and, and when he told stories. And look what happened, when was it, about a year ago, where this guy goes into a black church and shoots and shoots people in a black church? It's not like they're going to accuse the reporters of being racist for covering that story. So it made absolutely no sense. And when, when, when Sam and the late Curtis Hansen were writing the screenplay, Sam wanted that scene of the dog following the black man into the church and killing him under the uh, 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 stained glass window of St. Francis of Assisi, which we still have here. And Curtis said, Sam, that's too much over the top. You can't do that because Curtis is a California boy from was he he just passed away. God bless his soul. And he actually brought brought the project to Sam, and the two of them wrote it together. So I remember in the middle of the night, it was raining like cats and dogs outside. They called me and test me. What do you think of that scene? And I closed my eyes and thought it over, and I thought it was a little bit too much. But then I looked at the symbolism, and I knew how well Sam knew America, all of America, not just California, more than Curtis Hansen. I said, you know, Curtis, as a pro- uh, really, I, I thought, and I think Sam is right to put in that scene. Well, what happened 30 years later after the film was made, it happened in real life. It's like art imitating life. Oh, and by the way, Sam shot a pilot in 1959. Uh, called, uh, uh, tell them about uh, 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 combat. It's actually, yeah, it's uh, Dogface is, um, was a miniseries he was pitching at the time and he shot a pilot. It's uh, basically the Big Red One shot in a miniseries, but this first episode called Dogface is fantastic because it's a prelude to the Big Red One combined with White Dog because the star is a German Shepherd, a Nazi German Shepherd trained to hunt down American soldiers in the desert. Well, the Nazis used the Nazis used dogs. So I can see when White Dog came on his lap how that must have sparked his interest. Going back to the to the fifties when he, he was trying to make Dogface happen. It's a wonderful pilot actually and uh we're right now thinking about transferring it. We have a print um but we're gonna do something with that. It's a thirty minute pilot. Which I'm sure uh will And it's not only the Nazis using dogs in World War II, but runaway slaves were, 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 were brought back by dogs. The only other time I saw one of those dogs um, was in Django, actually, where there's a, one, of the, one of the dogs, which is not a white dog, but it's a, a dog trained to uh, attack the runaway slaves. You both worked in front of the camera with Sam, and I'm curious, what was he like as a director, especially when he's working with his own family? Well, he didn't sugarcoat it. That he he was straightforward with us too, which is a good thing. You know? Well, he, he he was a professional, and he had to get the shot over. You know, he always sometimes he only took one shot. 
And he said, I write with my camera, you know, being a, being a writer first, you know, he wrote so many scripts before he became a director. And his first film was I Shot Jesse James. I mean, on, on set, he is focused. He is focused, you know, very he, focused. And I always thought it was a real great crew. I always enjoyed being on set with him and, and watching him, you know, firing up the scene, <laughs> literally. You know, used to shoot with blanks to call action. Your mother is an accomplished actress. Your father is an accomplished writer-director. Did you kind of grow up with film in your blood? Well, how could I not? You know, how could I not? I can tell you our our dinner conversations always revolved about about films or books and uh, just interesting uh, discussions to be heard every night. My parents had a wonderful ping-pong match (laughs) back and forth with great ideas and, uh, you know, very inspiring, to say the least. And I don't mean to uh, short shrift you, uh, Krista, because I know that you've done some writing and producing as well, that to see your, your name associated with like Rebel Highway and, and uh, you know, Tigrero, some of these projects that just uh, really, you know, people needed to see. I think so. You know, Sam shot all that wonderful footage of the Karaja Indians in the Amazon jungle. And at one point, uh, before we moved to France, before the white dog uh, happened, uh, uh, we knew how much Orson Welles loved Brazil, and we were going to assemble all the footage and uh, ask Orson Welles and do a straight documentary. And uh, But Sam was too shy, and he said, I don't want to contact Orson uh, unless I have a check for 50 grand to give him. We knew Orson always needed money. And Sam Din was too shy to ask him to do it for nothing. A man like Orson Welles. And I had met Orson Welles when I was dating Sam. I had a scene, actually, with Orson in this Paris burning. He played the Swedish council, and I played a Nazi secretary. Uh, well, the Nazis had lost, but I'm burning all the dossiers in the fire. And I had a nice scene with Orson, but it was cut out of the film. The film was too long. Is Paris burning. And René Clément was a director. And people had warned me, oh, Orson Welles, he hates blondes and, you know, be careful. But I don't know, Orson and I hit it off. He said, you're a very good actress. He invited me for lunch. And during lunch, I told him that I was dating Sam Fuller. And uh, he said, I would love to meet him. I heard so much about uh, uh, Sam from Stanley Cortez, who shot The Magnificent Ambassadors for Orson and and he shot for Sam Naked Kiss in Shock Corridor. And I'd love to meet the guy and uh, let's go to the uh, Belle Ferronniere, which is opened last all night. And I was so excited that I could, you know, tell Sam, Orson wants to meet you too and to have dinner with these two geniuses, Sam and Orson Welles at the Belle Ferronniere, you know. I was just a little actress, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a star, you know, I, I always got good notices, whatever I did, but I, you know, I was a working actress and Sam disappointed me, but that was typical Sam. And he said, no, 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 I just don't want to meet him, you know, and waste his time or my time. When I have a check for him, I contact him and then I've got some meat and potatoes to offer him. But that's how Sam was, you know, he, he had his, I was very disappointed. So we still had all the footage and we never had 50 grand ahead to go and assemble it and sell it to National Geographic or some channel. And we were in New York and there was Jim Jarmusch and Mika Karosmaki and I told him about the wonderful film 
and Alex Rockwell, you know, our filmmaking buddies. And I told him about the wonderful footage Sam had of the Karaja Indians. Sam had gone uh, to the Amazon to do a film for 20th Century Fox called Chiguero in the 50s. And Daryl Evzanik loaded him uh, with uh, boxes of cigars and boxes of vodka. And he was supposed to do uh, a film. It was very uh, popular uh, to sort of make foreign films with foreign titles like Tigrero and Mogambo. Those kind of films, Zanuck liked adventure films with big stars. So finally, Sam was supposed to do this film with uh, uh, John Wayne, Tyron Power, and Ava Gardner, big cast. So he went to Brazil. And where he wanted to shoot, he had written the script called Tigrero. When Sam, where Sam wanted to shoot was where the Caraja live, at the foot of the Amazon River, the Amazon jungle. He stayed with the Caraja for a whole month. He unloaded his cigars and his vodka, and he just loved living with the Caraja Indians. As a matter of fact, we, we when he get got back to... Uh, Hollywood, he showed the rushes, and they say, no, 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 we cannot get insurance to shoot where you want to shoot with Ava Gardner's legs, uh, cost $8 million, uh, John Wayne. Uh, I mean, all these are big stars that need to be insured. Why can't you shoot it in the back lot of 20th Century Fox? So Sam didn't see any interest of, of shooting uh, that kind of a picture unless it's in real locations, you know? That was before the new wave did it. <laughs> because Sam inspired the French new wave a big time, you know? And then later the... Uh, so Sam had all the film he shot with his Bell and Howell camera uh, that he had used for the first time uh, shooting the concentration camp films uh, in Falconau. And then 10 years later, in 1945, and 10 years later... With the same camera, he shot uh, 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 the Karaja Indians. So we had all that film, and uh, uh, Jim Jamush, Mika Karasmaki, and Sam went back, and myself and Sarah Driver, and we shot a film called Tigrero and uh, incorporated, which won the Berlin Critics Award. And it's on DVD, and it's directed by Mika Karasmaki with Jim Jamush, the Karaja Indians. And Sam. So he was very disappointed uh, uh, that he couldn't shoot, uh, you know, his film with the Karaja Indians in real, on real location. He had a deal with Akio. Uh, he was a 20th Century Fox. And uh, he pitched uh, Run of the Arrow to Akio and to Bill Dozier, who uh, uh, was the head of Akio and who did three pictures with Sam. One of them was Run of the Arrow. And uh, uh, Sam wanted, uh, uh, so he could shoot in Utah with American Indians, you know? He, he sort of was inspired. I told you the story of the Karaja Indians to to see how, you know, that led into uh, Run of the Arrow. Actually, he shot Run of the Arrow back to back with Raoul Walsh shooting The King and Four Queens. And Raoul said to Sam, Sammy, what are you shooting? Tell me your plot. And Sam told him the, the plot. 
about a Southerner who's a sore loser and prefers living with the Indians rather than living under the, the Yankees. He's so full of hate. I personally love Run of the Arrow. I, 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 I love the way Sam sees American history, and he knew everything about American history. So they said they loved the script, RKO, but they didn't like the idea of Rod Steiger. And they say, uh, why do you want this guy who plays second fiddle to Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront? Uh, we can give you Gary Cooper. We have a million dollars to offer to Gary Cooper. And Sam said, no way, you know, that's going to be a, a straight Western. This is a story of a man who's bitter. And I need a guy with a fat ass <laughs> and who, 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 when he climbs on the horse, he's not a hero. He's washed up. He's going to where the sewer, the, the savages, they called them in those days. I love that scene on the bridge with Olive Carey. That's one of my favorite scenes. And I think Rod Steiger is really fantastic in it. I mean, Sam, you know, is an action director, and he had a bit, bit trouble with Rod, <coughs> who is a method actor. And uh, I took method acting with uh, Jack Garfine for a year, you know, and if you do an action picture, uh, you cannot use all the method. I mean, you, you can, it's a totally different media, you know. It was very intense, and he had to cut out some scenes, so... Uh, Sam was not Rod's favorite person. He was a very gloomy guy and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, very depressive in general. So being out, of, out on location, you know, you, you get to be fast, you know. Sam used the, the Indian uh, girl, uh, Yellow Moccasin, is played by Sarita Montiel. And she was the biggest star in, South, in Spain and South America. She was like their Brigitte Bardot. And at the time, she was married to Sam's friend, Anthony Mann. And uh, she plays Yellow Moccasin. But a lot of the Indians were real Indians. Sam pants on all those faces, and uh, he used real Indians, except for the speaking parts, you know, like uh, 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 Crazy Wolf and, uh, uh, you know, uh, of course, Charlie Bronson, you know. So, but the picture got fantastic reviews when it came out, and uh, but Akio was, uh, sold it to Universal, so it sort of got a strange release despite the great reviews. Uh, did you ever read the article Luc Moulet wrote uh, on uh, Run of the Arrow? I don't know where I have it, but wow, he compared Sam to Christopher Marlowe and, uh, you know, picked up on the foot fetish when, you know, the running I remember when I saw the picture for the first time, I was very impressed, and I revisited it once in a while, and I really think it's a fa fabulous film. And uh, uh, oh, there's so many wonderful things in there. You know, I like the scene with Rod Steiger and Brian Keith, you know, where Brian Keith, the real Yankee, you know, he refers to the pillowcase as the KKK, you know. And Rod Steiger gets all uh, embarrassed, and he said, yeah, we happen to read books in the South, you know. It has a lot of Sam's humor, you know, and uh, uh, Brian Keith, you know, tries to tell him about democracy, and, uh, you know, there's that scene. There are a lot of scenes that I find very poignant in, in Run of the Era and very uh, relevant to, days, for, to today, you know. I, I love the music, too.
I just love the whole vibe of the picture. What is democracy? Democracy is very, uh, it's not very satisfactory. It's always full of conflict. But you always feel you're on the verge of the apocalypse. Well, it's nuts, you know. I mean, history moves forward, you know. The, if, you, if you look at the march of history, people have always been taken over by another culture, another civilization, you know. Charles Bronson, Mary Steiger, and uh, uh, Yellow Moccasin, Sarita Motel, he said, okay, we all have the same God. I like that when, when he said, is your God, uh, does he do this, does he do that, you know? And uh, he says, I'm Christian, Rod Steiger says. And I like at the end when he reverts back to, because in a way we always revert back to what we were as a child, because I think ourselves as a, he cannot, when he takes out the bullet and shoots Ralph Meeker, they want to skin him alive. He can't take it. Sam made violent pictures, but he was not a violent man. And plus it looks like he is a, a male, a man's director, but his films are actually very feminist. The women always save the man. He's got very strong female leads, you know? Yeah, because he loved his mother and uh, and uh, he always, you know, he used to work as a teenage crime reporter for John Houston's mother uh, at a paper, uh, at a newspaper. And I think what Sam experienced in his youth and then later on in the war, you know, having done every battle in World War II, including the third wave on Omaha Beach, which was the most lethal wave not not a lot of people survived. So he had, he has seen his amount of cruelty in real life, and I think he was so totally anti-war because nobody is more opposed to war than someone who has fought a war. And Sam volunteered in World War II because he wanted to give something back to democracy that made him believe it's going to be the war to end all wars. So he volunteered when his career was going pretty strong as a screenwriter. What were those years like when he was kind of uh, in the wilderness, you know, the, after White Dog? Because, he, you know, he, he talks about how the 60s and 70s weren't necessarily good for him, but he did have some great films that he made um, after White Dog. Well, I don't know. Those were films. Uh, well, he did the big right one. You know, Hoberman, who's a fan of White Dog, he said something about Sam Fuller, who was washed up at that time or something. And I said, I'm straight. I said, you don't talk about an artist and say an artist is washed up. You know, I mean, Sam still made in, 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 in he, he did the big red one in, uh, 78. And he was offered other pictures after the big red one. And he could have made an action picture in Japan. And instead of that, he picks because he was an idealist about America and he really cared for America. And he picked White Dog. I mean, how, how could, how could get it get us? Uh, you know, Curtis was a friend of his since he's 19 or 20 years old. Hey, but he, Sam was always working. He was always working after White Dog, if that's the point you're making. Yeah, well, uh, when White Dog was wasn't... unemployed. When White Dog, when White Dog wasn't uh, uh, released, a young man from France came and said, if Sam wants to make a film in France, I think everybody was shocked when Roman Gary, the writer of White Dog committed suicide in 1980. And that's still with me, and that really is trotting. I read his biography. I met the writer at the French Council, 
who wrote a biography on Roman Gary, but I think it's much deeper because in his goodbye letter, when he shot himself, he said it wasn't because of his wife, Jean Seberg, his ex-wife, Jean Seberg, who killed herself the year before. It's really tragic, this Roman Gary, Jean Seberg couple. The, and their son wrote a book uh, about a year or two ago. I mean, he opens the drawers and he sees a picture of his mother and father on their wedding day. I mean, how beautiful can you get, you know, like Gene Seberg and our handsome uh, Roman Gary and talented. You know, he won the Goncourt Prize. He wrote a lot of movies. And, uh, you know, and I just wonder, and I could almost put the dots together, but it's so tragic how people are so idealistic. Gene Seberg became sort of a Joan of Arc character in real life. Being involved with the Black Panthers, as I gave her twenty five dollars once for the Black Panthers, and 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 she was so idealistic about America. You know, this young girl from the Midwest who was seventeen years old, uh, uh, discovered by Otto Preminger for Joan of Arc and Bonjour Tristesse, and twenty years later she's dead in a car. What is next for Fuller Life? Where is that going to be available at? Fuller Life, um, we have a DVD that's for sale on our website on com. It will also be on the Criterion's new site. They've affiliated with Turner and have a site called Filmstruck. And so a Fuller Life will be featured there, and we couldn't be happier to be homed with Criterion because I feel that's really the, the right place for the film to be. They have a few other of my father's films, Pick Up on South Street, uh, White Dog, Naked Kiss and Shock Corridor. Criterion gave us permission uh, uh, to create this website under chrissamfilms.com. And I think students of film and history should look at it because it's all real what's in there, even though the actors, it, it's not fiction. You know, all the excerpts are real footage, footages shot by Sam. And I think since students often are bored by history, I think it would make it more exciting for them to see real people telling the event. I think it's very didactic, you know. That was a fun fun process, making that film. And Joe Dante, instead of Joe Dante, we wanted Martin Scorsese, but he didn't want to take the plane he hates to fly. And who can we get to play the Sicilian? Our friend Joe Dante. And he said, yes, yeah, right away. And what a pro Joe is. I mean, he's just such a wonderful guy, you know? There was a subtle casting in the sense, you know, Joe Dante had just gotten his Italian papers. So I thought, how appropriate to put him in the Sicilian chapter. I have to say, Mark Hamill, such a good job doing the, the, uh, the oh narration. Oh, my God. It, I, get, I get the chills all the time. Of course, we had to have the boys from the Big Red One. Bobby DiCicco couldn't make it. Uh, he couldn't fly out. He had a family thing. But Mark Hamill, his anti-war speech is so poignant, and it's so Sam. He imitated Sam so well, you know? You guys should really, really be proud of the work that you did on this documentary, because it it was fantastic to see, and I'm so glad that it's available now, and I'm so glad that Criterion is going to be putting it out, because really it is something that more people need to be exposed to. Right, right. We're excited about that. It's going to be out with their um, on their website, Filmstruck. But in the meantime, we have our, our DVD <laughs> that's going out and uh, with the bonus features. Because we raised the money through Kickstarter, which was hell, you know. 
because, you know, a, a lot of people know Sam Fuller, but a lot of most people don't. Well, get ready for another one for Organized Insanity. That may happen. Well, you just let me know when that happens, and I will be sure to tout the heck oh, out of it. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely. Yeah, I'll send you, I'll send you a link to the website to put it up. Uh, I saw you, you put links up on your on your site. Hopefully that will help promote a fuller life a little more. been doing a lot of word of mouth, and this, this kind of podcast helps a lot. back and we were talking about Run of the Arrow. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Joseph. The book's title is The Quick, The Dead, and The Revived, The Many Lives of the Western Film. Now, we have talked a little bit about this so far, but I'm curious, you know, last time you were on the show, I know we were talking about Lance Hendrickson and the bio that you helped write with Lance and all this, and um, I know that you've done uh, work on, on a lot of uh, genre and horror pieces, so I was very surprised when you went to westerns was it just that they're how did westerns kind of fit into your worldview i was surprised too i've been sitting on this this project for for quite a while i actually i started uh outlining and thinking about it before i started working with lance on his biography so so three books i'd written three full books uh since the time i I started kind of brainstorming the western book and you know i guess it started from two places it started from you know my my horror book nightmares in red white and blue being sort of a survey of uh, American horror films uh, in in political context, trying to give them some historical context, so that there would be a narrative to kind of lead the audience through this. You know, what is basically a long laundry list of horror movies. I wanted to do another book like that because I just I, I like researching you know sort of big broad topics and trying to see the forest through the trees. Westerns was not something I, I hadn't grown up watching Westerns. Um, you know, I guess this is a generational thing. I, I really wasn't wasn't particularly interested in Westerns. I saw, you know, a lot of a lot of Clint Eastwood stuff. I was certainly in the theaters a lot for the Westerns that came out in the early 90s. You know, would watch Clint Eastwood uh, movies when they were on TV around the holidays, watched, uh, you know, some of the classics of John Ford stuff when I was taking film classes in college. But it was moving out to Los Angeles uh, about 10 years ago, my wife and I started to discover this this new place we were living, started doing uh, going to a lot of hiking destinations. And inevitably, you go to the scenic places in and around L.A. And, and uh, you know, it's, a certain number of films have been shot pretty much everywhere. But as we're going off the, the beaten path and going out into the mountains and getting further and further afield from the city, uh, you start finding these places that are that are connected uh, in one way or another, to Western films that I had never seen, uh, so I just I just started binge watching uh, westerns because you know I I thought that was interesting to to I, I always think it's interesting to sort of watch a film and and be able to stand in the space where it was shot. It's it's, it's this this may be I know it's not unique to me, but some people 
really sort of appreciate that kind of overlap of of uh of fiction and reality you know that in a way it makes the fiction seem more real and and i you know i find that fascinating so i just started watching the movies because i had been to the places where they were shot and and i you know i just i i got obsessed westerns were so much more complex as a genre than i than i thought they were you know i i think i just had kind of bought into this cliche that that maybe younger generations hold that they're all kind of dusty and old fashioned and conservative. You know, I, I, I didn't see where there was going to be a lot of philosophical tension in those narratives that would, that would, that would keep me watching hundreds and hundreds of them and, and really parsing the nuances, but I was wrong. I mean, the more, the more I watched, the more apparent it became that I was wrong uh, to the point that I was really pulling my hair out because I had, you know, I had literally stacks of notebooks with handwritten notes about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Westerns that I had watched, uh, you know, and I would go to this video store in North Hollywood that has everything, you know, and, and then the big challenge after, you know, four or five years of watching these things and taking notes was was how to organize them in a coherent narrative and sort of present them. You know, the idea of the book was to present this genre to people who uh, you know, maybe my age and younger who grew up on action and horror and science fiction, but have not really given Westerns a chance. May, you know, I've seen a few, I've liked what they've seen, but kind of don't know where to go next. Um, I wanted to, to, to give a big, uh, you know, again, a big laundry list of, of Westerns that you should see. And here's why. That's a really big bite to take westerns go back to the nascent days of cinema you know you think of westerns and you can think of the great train robbery i I would never even dare to attempt to look at as many westerns as you did for this this project i mean how long did it take you to put this together It, it was six years from i think from start to finish and and frankly in in hindsight even halfway through i would say if i knew at that point what it was going to involve, I probably wouldn't have started. I'm compulsive, and once I get that far down the road, I have to see something through. But it it was certainly a much bigger project than than I envisioned, and it was it was much bigger, really, than tackling the horror genre, which 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 was was not as big a topic for me to tackle because I'd grown up watching horror movies and already knew a, a fair amount from years and years and years of watching those films, um, and I was. Not exactly starting from scratch with westerns, but um, you know, I, I made a lot of discoveries, and even even some of the films that I think for anybody who's you know, even remotely fascinated with with westerns, some of the things that the films that would be obvious to them were things that I had not seen. But that was, you know, it's I mean, it's just it's all about the nature of obsession. <laughs> and any of the books that I write are are, are about obsession, and this one. Uh, this one just took a little more time. It was a it was a bigger subject than I knew. You you have to find some constraints um, somewhere. And uh, as I was watching, I read um, a great book on the westerns of the '30s. Uh, I forget the author's name. I think the book was called The Lost Trail. It's a fantastic book. It, it made me realize that that I wasn't going to have a lot to say about the westerns of the the '20s and '30s. You know, I, I just I, I I thought I would. I thought I would mess that up, and I, I just I wasn't seeing the kind of nuances there that that interested me. So I so really the book starts um, in 1939, which is um, you know I, I think for uh, a lot of people is sort of the you know it's always pointed to as the year when the adult western 
uh, became a thing. You know, you start with with stuff like Stagecoach, Jesse James, and Dodge City, Destry Rides again. You know, you have these kind of big budget west. It's it's almost like where where the well, if it's fair to say where the western went mainstream, but these are these were you know a list a budget westerns that made a lot of money and really kind of built. Uh, a more sophisticated version of a genre that already existed. So I started there, and probably, probably you you could make an argument that you could have stopped the book in like 1972 because really that's when those a westerns stopped making money, and so Hollywood stopped making them. But I but because I grew up on action, science fiction, and horror, uh, it became fascinating for me to then continue the story, continue the narrative, and to look at films in those genres, films that I knew and grew up with that seemed really comparable in a lot of ways to the Westerns that I, the older Westerns that I was then seeing for the first time. And so, uh, you know, so that the narrative goes up to, um, to 2010, looking at films that some people wouldn't even consider Westerns, but kind of looking at similarities of themes and characters. And, and it's hard, you know, a lot of times for me to be watching those genres that I grew up on now and not see the the sort of the bare bones of of classic westerns behind them. It's always interesting to me the way that genres can be so malleable. You know that uh, I mentioned a fistful of dollars before. I mean that that can transform from a Dashiell Hammett gangster story to a samurai story to uh, one of the seminal spaghetti westerns to other things. You know, I mean, we're, we're not done with A Festival of Dollars. We're not done with Red Harvest. I mean, of course, there was Last Man Standing, but you can see so many ideas that A Festival of Dollars brought to us. Just the way that we can have these same ideas. So I can definitely see when you're looking at the science fiction and some of these other films in the 70s and 80s and 90s and and 2000s that aren't necessarily Westerns, but they definitely fit with that. Of course, one of my favorite Westerns, quote unquote, is Battle Beyond the Stars, which is templated off of Seven Samurai and, and The Magnificent Seven. And I always love that Robert Vaughn kind of reprises role from Magnificent Seven into Battle Beyond the Stars, but that you're not limiting yourself to six guns and and um, shootouts on the street. That's, that's kind of crazy. You know, you're, you're just taking on so much work. It, it, I mean, I'm just so impressed with what you put together. But at the same time, I'm just like, my God, how could he have done this? This is just so much work. You can read the book and tell me whether or not you, you think it works. I've already taken some criticism on those those later chapters because, you know, I, I mean, I think Western purists, as soon as you start mentioning, uh, you know, I mean, like space Western, I mean, that's a, that's a term that they just will not accept. You know, it's no other science fiction movies, Westerns are Westerns and science fiction movies are science fiction movies. And that's that. What you have to ask yourself is what do you gain by accepting kind of broader boundaries for the genre or broader definition of the genre. Um, you know, when I did Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue, I, I will accept a lot of different subgenres under that broad heading of, of horror movie. And I do that because I'm a horror movie enthusiast, you know, and, and so I like looking at, at, at all of those connections and they are all related in my mind because I'm interested in them all and I'm excited about them all. You know, I don't have a very rigid definition 
of the of the western uh, as a genre. And I think it's I mean, I, I guess it's not an academic perspective. It's an it's a fan perspective. It's an enthusiast's perspective. You know, it's exciting to me that all these things are connected. You know, you bring up Battle Beyond the Stars. I mean, Roger Corman, because he's been around for so long, started in westerns. You know, his first film that he directed was a western. In fact, I think like one of his first Hollywood jobs, he was a I just gotta see if I can get this right. He was a reader for I forget which studio, which whichever whichever studio ended up making uh, the Gunfighter, the Gregory Peck film, and that that he you know he was a reader and did the the you know the coverage for that and said, well you know if you change this and you change that, and at least according to Corman, you know he had a hand in kind of designing this classic. Western that, of course, nobody would ever associate with Roger Corman. As a horror science fiction fan, somebody who reveres Roger Corman, that's fascinating to me. I was I was constantly finding these places where, you know, filmmakers that I'll give you the perfect example. Like I I love the the Val Luton RKO horror films uh, of the 1940s, you know, the cat people and I walked with a zombie and the body snatcher and seventh victim and all that stuff. I love that stuff. And Val Luton made a western called uh, Apache Drums, and his his sort of protégés, the directors who were making those films, the horror films with him at, at RKO, um, Jacques Tourneur and Robert Wise, those guys went on and made westerns. And they're really interesting westerns. There's actually a ton of these kind of film noir, vaguely metaphysical westerns. And I'm, a, I'm actually a sucker for these metaphysical westerns because it's like this perfect hybrid of, you know, two of my favorite genres, <laughs> you know, it's, they're not just political. You think of, of, of the context for Westerns as being political and, and, you know, maybe for horror movies, it's a little bit more metaphysical because you're dealing with, you know, life and death and, and all of that. But there's, there's this kind of, there's this dread and this emphasis on a, a different kind of atmosphere, a very dark uh, atmosphere, dark cinematography in those films you know, it just, it's a really, really rich genre. There's just, just like with horror films, there's a lot of different avenues you can go down. And so, you know, my mistake was thinking that, that I knew what a Western was and that all Westerns were going to basically be the same, you know, white hat, black hat showdown on the dusty street thing. And, and, you know, that's very naive on my part. I, I admit, you know, even to say that's naive, I, I didn't have any, you know, any idea how naive it was. I mean, there are so many westerns out there. A lot of them are just, you know, in recent years becoming available on DVD and and Blu-ray. It's a genre I think that's really, really ripe for rediscovery because there's so much there, or or discovery by, you know, by by younger generations. Colin, you've seen a lot more westerns than I have. What are some of the ones that stand out for you that you go back to? Ah, this is tough. I mean, That's I, how I started the book. Actually, was by asking that question at, at, among you know Western enthusiasts, and I always loved hearing the answer. I'm excited about this. I mean, I'll, I'll start off actually with I absolutely adore the bees. I, I love all the the fuzzy Saint John stuff with uh, you know he was the sidekick for Buster Crab and Lash Larue. And they're not the most famous ones, but I, I'm obsessed with the economy of storytelling in, in those movies. I almost like it becomes like abstract almost. There's um, and, and like what you were saying earlier, uh, Joseph, about how a western can be so many different things. Uh, 
Yeah, there, there are weird, funny stories about I think his brother's his brother's ghost. Um, they kill Fuzzy St. John, and then immediately his uh, twin brother just happens to appear, and it becomes this really goofy comedy, um, but quite funny. I mean, more seriously, um, though. Actually, I do take the Fuzzy St. John very seriously. I have a looking at a poster of him right now in my apartment. Um, but next to him is the Randolph Scott in the Tall T. I, I adore all the Bud Bedecker movies, um, Seven Men from Now. I think Ride Lonesome might be my favorite. Uh, you mentioned Turner. I, I, I think Wichita with Joel McRae is a fascinating pacifist Western. Well, Joseph, even when it came to the spaghetti Westerns, I mean, there have been tons of volumes. I mean, I'm looking at my, my bookshelves right now, and I can see at least three books just solely dedicated to spaghetti westerns. How did you decide what to write about when it came to that? Spaghetti westerns was was tough just because, you know, they have a really hardcore following um, that, that I think is is that different audience that maybe grew up on more on action and horror and that kind of stuff because they um, they're, they're edgier and they're, they're, they're so much more abstract in a lot of ways. You know, the, the saving grace probably for this whole project was having access to a video store here in, in North Hollywood called Eddie Brandt's Saturday matinee, uh, which has a, uh, I think about 90,000 videotapes is an old fashioned VHS, you know, rental store. Um, and they, they not only have things that were pre-recorded, but, but the, the people who work there and people who um, use the store have taped things off of TV that maybe only aired once uh, and, and it's never been you know, released on VHS or DVD. And they have these what they call loaner tapes. Uh, and so whenever you rent something and pay for a pre-recorded video, they'll give you one loaner tape. Um, and so you know, I had access to a ton of stuff. When I was, when I was first starting to work on this, um, Quentin Tarantino was researching Django. And he would go to this store and I would always go into the guy, you know, the guy behind the desk uh, would always say, oh, yeah, Quentin was just in here and he just rented that. And so I was, you know, I was always excited thinking one day I was going to walk into the Western section and Quentin Tarantino was going to be standing there, which didn't happen. But I, but I think they had actually augmented their spaghetti Western collection, <laughs> you know, getting some of the, these, you know, rare spaghetti Westerns that weren't even, uh, you know, dubbed into English. Uh, and they had the, they had them there you know, uh, sitting on the shelf. And so I kind of used that as a resource. And then uh, the Spaghetti Western database online, just because it's so comprehensive. I mean, sorting through just the alternate titles for Spaghetti Westerns alone, you can lose, you can lose days just, just trying to figure that out. And, you know, as, as with everything else, it just became, you have to kind of track down and watch everything that sounds like it might be worthwhile or like it might provide you with some kind of connected tissue. And you don't want to overlook something that is, that is really important thematically to that as a subgenre. So it became just watching, um, a lot of that stuff and, and taking notes. You know, I know that, that the, the, the book as a whole, the first draft was, was much longer and it was, it was a hard book to edit because there were just so many tangents I mean, there's, there's so many roads to go down and so many films I wanted to include and so much I wanted to say about about each film. You know, it was, it was hard kind of streamlining the the narrative. Uh, like you said, there's entire books written about this. So it's so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of ridiculous for me to, to think that I can 
can can boil it all down but basically you know i suppose what i'm what i'm doing is just trying to express after watching all these things my perspective on it and and my fascination and to kind of encapsulate that as best i can you know just i just watched a shit ton of movies <laughs> How much do apartments cost near this video store? Because I'm <laughs> completely willing to relocate. It's pretty insane. It really, it really is. I mean, you know, I, I think people Compared in the entertainment York, industry. Is, oh, uh, oh well, you mean the video store being insane? I just yeah, yeah. No, no that no, no North. You you can afford North Hollywood. I'm going to get on like uh, apartmentfinder.com <laughs> or whatever. There you go. You know, they they do um, they do a lot of business you know, over the phone and online. I mean, they will, if there's something you want to track down, you can call them. And if they have it, they will make a copy for it and send it out to you. So, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a great resource. I love video stores. I miss them. There's a couple of small places in New York, but it, it's video store, video, like finding video in New York is almost impossible. Now you have to buy everything on the internet, which is what I wound up doing when I got into Westerns, just, scouring ebay every day and it's not it's not the same i mean i think maybe that was yet another reason why i tackled this book was remembering i I didn't know it was ever going to get published but when i was researching my first horror book you know it was going around to mom and pop video stores trying to find things you know that that weren't in every video store you know there's the beauty of mom and pop video stores they would always have one or two things that you couldn't find anywhere else and that thrill of discovery uh was, was really one of the things that was driving me uh, on on that first book was just doing the research and what do I need to see making these lists and then and then trying to track them down uh, you know really like traveling all over I was living in Virginia and would travel all over the state looking for these random movies and uh, and and so you know I think for the Western too that was part of part of the appeal and part of the excitement was go back to a video store go back to a VCR and be watching these versions that that felt. I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, you just, you don't get the same, the same thrill. I don't think even from, uh, you know, getting online and, and, you know, finding pirated versions, it's just, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm just, just me, just me being old fashioned, just old, you know, you know what I'm trying to find is an, the color version of fighting man of the plains that Randolph Scott movie. Cause mm. it was either cine color or true color. And then it was converted to black and white for television. And that's the only version that's been officially released on VHS. I found someone through the internet that had videotaped a 35 print in color, except it had deteriorated so badly that the night scenes are just black. You can't watch them. And when Kino was uh, releasing Blu-rays of like Caribou Trail and... Shoot, they did one other Canadian Pacific recently. They were trying to do Fighting Man of the Plains, but they just couldn't find the right elements. And it's killing me. I want to see this movie. I've seen half of it. I've seen the color. I've seen the daytime scenes, but yeah, I think Tarantino has become something of a of a preservationist, uh, and you know, and especially for westerns because he's so immersed in westerns lately. You know, I know that that uh, you know he he programs you know the new Beverly out here in L.A. from his own private collection. All, everything that screens there is his film, and they they definitely a lot of westerns turn up. Some of they they did a a lot of spaghetti westerns. This was several months ago, and I think it was some kind of it was like a tribute to films that that sort of vaguely inspired Django. Um, so a lot of stuff turned up. They did a Bud Bedecker 
at least a double feature or a couple of double features, I think. And so I, I know he likes the, you know, the Bedecker Scott collaborations. Uh, I don't know if he's a, a Randolph Scott uh, fan per se, but it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if he's got a lot of these things in his collection. You're killing me. <laughs> so just move to LA and it'll solve all your problems. <laughs> People have been trying to convince me to move to LA for a long time, but nobody has said anything at all convincing until you just now this podcast will do it where's the best place for people to pick up your book well, i think it's it should be in all the, the the obvious places uh online i know that um you can get the uh the ebook version i think for only ten dollars on amazon it's, it's not it's not that i necessarily want to convince people to pay less for a book but i but i like the idea that at ten dollars you, you really can't go wrong even if you only sort of half like the book <laughs> There's a, I'll, I'll, I'll do this plug for, for people, and this will also be uh, another way to try to get Colin out to L.A. Uh, there's an appendix uh, at the back of the book that is all the filming locations, and it's really throughout out the West, um, you know, multiple states that have been featured in different Westerns and specifically the Westerns that I write about in the book. So there's a, there's a bit of a kind of travel guide for L.A. and surrounding areas you know, if you're interested in just seeing where, where the Western films you love have been shot. And as somebody who loves filming locations, to me, it's like, all right, a $10 ebook. I'd buy a $10 ebook just for the appendix. <laughs> That's my sales pitch. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. The musical heartbeat of the 50s, the birth of an era, a whole generation having fun and looking for love. It's Lemon Popsicle. You haven't told me your name. Benji. And you're? Nikki. Nikki? Nikki. Ricky? Nikki. Keep your mind on your driving
lemon popsicle is everything about being 70, an age when there's no time to sleep. The golden era of rock and roll is Lemon Popsicle, featuring on the soundtrack 25 great songs by 22 of the original hit artists. Don't miss the year's most entertaining and appealing film, Lemon Popsicle, Certificate X. That's right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of Lemon Popsicle and its many sequels and its American remake, The Last American Virgin. I'll be joined once again by Heather Drain and Oren Shai to discuss this Israeli sex comedy. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-host, Colin and Joseph. So, Colin, what are the haps with you, sir? Uh, well, since we're talking Westerns, I'm feeling really guilty that I haven't finished editing the Western novels uh, that I started a few years ago, which are loosely called the Scumbag Western Trilogy. So I th- think my conscience is not going to let me sleep tonight until I at least open the Microsoft Word documents and get back to work. I just need to move to L.A. and finish editing these books and go to that video store. That just seems like such a better life. I'm sorry to do that to you. It's 11 o'clock at night, so no sleep for Cullen. And Joseph, once again, for the folks in the cheap seats, where can people go to pick up The Quick, The Dead, and The Revived, The Many Lives of the Western Film? You know, plug it into Google. You'll find it. It's a McFarland uh, publication, and, and uh, I think all the obvious booksellers online should should have it. Thank you. I have to say, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous book. Yeah. I spent the, the last stage of doing the book was, uh, was, was going around to dealers here in L.A. and, and trying to find the right uh, publicity stills, and that... that that was pretty exciting, too. So there's there's plenty of those in there. Yeah, a lot of pictures, which I was surprised about, because most of the time when I think of McFarland, I don't tend to think of photos in their books. So I was really glad to see just how many photo reprints they did for this, because it looks terrific, and it really kind of adds to it to see these actors that you're talking about. To have Randolph Scott there when you're talking about Randolph Scott really does make a difference. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. An old cowpoke been riding out one dark and windy day. Upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way. When all at once a mighty herd of red-eyed cows he saw a plowing through the ragged skies and up a cloudy draw. were still on fire and their hooves were made of steel their horns were black and shiny and their hot breath he could feel a bowl of fear went through him as they thundered through the sky for he saw the riders coming hard and he heard their mournful cry In the sky 
faces gaunt, their eyes were blurred and shirts all soaked with sweat. They're riding hard to catch that herd, but they ain't caught them yet. Cause they've got to ride forever on that range up in the sky. On horses snorting fire as they ride on, hear their cry. Loped on by him, he heard one call his name. If you want to save your soul from hell, a riding on our reins. Then cowboy, change your ways today, or with us you will ride. A trying to catch the devil's herd across these endless skies. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.